ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, it's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. And welcome back with Fight Night Picks, and I am so excited about this weekend's card. In the main event, Thiago Santos taking on Johnny Walker. It's absolute fireworks, and there's so many fights on this card to get excited about. As always, one half of your hosting duo, Craig Allen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, as always, Matt Allen. You can find him on their respective socials, at Matt Allen FNP. We make it very simple, Matt. Last weekend, UFC 266, what a card, and we have so many thanks to throw out to you the fans i mean it was one of the most successful weekends we've had with fight night picks everybody tuning into question mark kicks and for those pay-per-view cards we had the fight companion and man it was such an awesome time i went 11 and 2 you went 10 and 3 but listen the picks aside we had a great time and we just wanted to shout out a lot of people out there for making it a great one craig higgins he's got a birthday coming up this week there but a go. lot of the fans akash deep who's always there phoenix so many people that i can't just name you all but but uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks so much to the fans, Matt. Yeah, no, that was a huge weekend for us. And it was just a great time, too. That's the best part about doing question mark kicks and doing those fight companions is getting to answer your guys' questions right before the fight cards start and actually getting to interact with you all. So it was a great weekend, and hopefully we can do it again soon. We don't get to throw it out there much. I don't remember the last time we threw out the Fight Night Picks trophies. I mean, listen, for the weekend, I ended up with it. But really, where it counts, we have this other one, the Fight Night Picks Prediction MVP. It's going to be mine goes, this year. Goes year over year. I'm catching up so far over the last like, know, couple but... of months. I'm catching up. But really, I just wanted to say, you guys, you're the real MVP. Matt, it was a crazy week last week. Obviously, we had the UFC Hall of Fame. GSP makes it in. So how exciting was that? But if we can parlay that into this week, we have a great slate of fights so far. 13 of them on this card. Santos Walker up at the top. You've got Kevin Hall and Kyle Dawkins in that co-main event. But we were kind of chatting about this card even just last week. And I said, man, this is one of those cards where I'm going to start just put every fight out with. I'm so excited about this fight because it really feels like a Craig Allen card. My guy, Douglas Silva de Andrade, is on this one. There's so many fighters that I pick and choose and I always keep in my mind as guys and gals to watch out for. And listen, I am really jazzed up for this one. Yeah, it should be a really fun pair top to bottom. Well, we'll throw it on over to our Fight of the Night screen, as always presented by Manscaped. Check them out, manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP. You're going to save 20% off and get free shipping. There's a couple of them I'm really looking forward to. We'll throw it on over there. Alex Oliveira taking on Nico Price. These guys are walking performance bonuses, and if they're not getting performance bonuses, they're getting no contest because they're crazy. But I, I really do like this one. It should be an absolute slobber knocker at 170 pounds. These are two guys who don't care at all about striking defense and who love to throw massive shots in the feet. It should be a phenomenal fight. And I know the Brazilian Cowboy's been on a bit of a skid. He's not the contender that he once was, but this is really going to answer an important question. Nico Price fought to a try with the American Cowboy. So he couldn't get no over contest. that hurdle. No contest. Nah, it was a draw, then turned to a no contest. Anyways, and then can he beat the Brazilian Cowboy though? That really is the question. I think this fight should be great. Should be an awesome one. And if we flip it on over to our second choice, this is one of those fights where I could see somebody that just tunes in every now and again. They've got that washing machine cycle, like the new one that I just bought that has casuals on it. They're going to read this and they're going to say, what? 
But Devontae Smith and Jamie Mollerke, these guys are very, very technical strikers. And while they might be known as striker or wrestler, they really possess every single quality that you like to see in a new age martial artist. For Jamie Mollerke, he's got that weird win over Kama Worthy. For Devontae Smith, he's got that weird loss to Kama Worthy. So the, they share that in common. But man, these guys know how to have a good time in the cage. And I can't wait for this fight. Jamie Mollerke lost to Brad Riddell in his UFC debut. And it felt like everybody wrote him off afterwards. It's like, oh... So we're going to forget about Jamie Mollerke? And his last two fights, he has looked pretty good. I know the Zium loss isn't great, but still, loss. it was a really close fight, and he does have an argument to win that one. And even if you have a close fight with a guy like Brad Riddell, and you have the type of fight that he had with Riddell, that means that your fight with Devontae Smith is probably going to be absolute fireworks. Devontae Smith, big power shots in the feet. Ken Russell, this fight is going to be the fight of the night. I can almost guarantee it. Smith messed up Justin Jane's eye in his last fight, and again for Mullerkey, big time left hook, knocked out comma-worthy, face-planted, and that was all she wrote. So I can't wait for this one. Make sure you check out Manscaped at manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping on your order and I suggest you do big time fights coming up on this card so I can't wait for it and of course we've had quite a few people on the socials at Fight Night Picks at Craig Allen FNP at Matt Allen FNP that have been real MVPs to the channel and they're saying hey we want those Dana White's Contender Series previews and you'll get them if we can reach 30,000 subscribers we've thrown the challenge out to you and it bumped up quite a bit there last week so that's all that's all it takes I mean hey if you've been thinking about hovering over that sub button just just hit it just hit it just have fun and listen toss us a like and get the ball rolling tell a friend if you will you can check out our sponsor like i said manscaped at manscaped.com use the promo code fnp you're going to get 20 percent off and free shipping you can also support the channel where some of the merch the boys are wearing it's at fightnightpicks.com i still have some of the small uh black long sleeve shirts there's still a number of the under armor shirts with Ooh. fight night picks on there and then the fight night picks under armor hat and the coolest part about the hat it's got the maple leaf on the back. So if you were looking at making the Canadian connection, maybe you wanted to be a Captain Canada type, no affiliation with Marvel, then you could. And Matt, like I said, I'm I'm really looking forward to this slate of fights. There's so many up and comers. There's so many old and buyers. I don't know what you want to say about them, but Johnny Eduardo, and then you also have a fight with Rowdy Betchkoya on this card. I can't wait for it. Let's keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. This is one of those fights where new fans to MMA and the UFC are going to go, who are those guys? And they're not talking about the Fight Night Picks guys. We have Alejandro Perez taking on Johnny Eduardo. And Matt, who are these guys? Johnny Eduardo's been in the UFC for almost a decade. Where are you, Johnny? Where have you been? And Alejandro Perez, he won the Ultimate Fighter Latin America Season 1. He's a really exciting fighter. When you boil this down, this is one of those classic... Really exciting fights from Craig Allen. And it is like, if styles make fights, these guys can have a fun one. Here's the problem, Craig. You're getting 2018 excited over this fight. The problem is, it's 2021. And these guys are a little bit past their primes. Well, for Johnny Eduardo, this is where it gets really squirrely. I listed it in the picture. What do I have him as? I have to look. I have him as, what is it, 43? UFC and ESPN, they're in cahoots when it comes to records, and they'll count, like, uh, ultimate fighter wins that were three-round fights here and there. They pick and choose. But age-wise, they have him as 43. 
I read a Guillerme Cruz article when Johnny Eduardo was supposed to fight Anthony Burchak back in the spring. Of course, Eduardo had to pull out due to visa issues. So A, hopefully he makes it to this fight. But B, Guillerme was like, okay, well, he's 41 or 40 then. Well, now he's 41. Sure Dog and Tapology say that he's 41. So whether he's 41 or 43, you can kind of throw it out the window because I don't know if I've ever seen a very good Bantamweight that's 41 to 43. Like, that's not the sweet spot age-wise, especially a guy that debuted as a pro in 1996. That was two years before Matt was born. Yeah, I didn't exist when this I guy started doing MMA. That's how long Johnny Eduardo's been around the block for. Now, just to shift it over to Alejandro Perez, because let's be honest, he's also had a weird career. He was so good up until he first started to lose, and that was the weird thing. He was a ranked bantamweight, and one with a lot of hype around him too it wasn't just the fact that he had won the ultimate fighter it was okay he's now starting to pick up good wins in the ufc he's actually a tough winner who didn't just win the ultimate fighter kind of get happy after that lose the ufc debut and get lost in the shuffle he had a pretty good run and then it all culminated to that song yadong fight now i understand he lost that he had lost the fight right before but the song yadong fight was okay we have these two sort of prospects if you will and now we're going to figure out who's the best that's one of the most violent knockouts you will ever see in the UFC. Song Yedong pops Perez's head back like a Pez dispenser, and it is absolutely disgusting. Now, I don't really know if Perez has just decided to take the time off because the damage from that, maybe he did want to give his brain some time He's got off. a young family. Exactly, and listen, the last two years have been pretty weird for everybody, and hopefully that is the circumstances, because i got to be honest, in his initial rise throughout the UFC ranks, I thought he was going to be... Maybe not a top five guy, maybe not a top 10 guy, but I thought at a minimum he was going to be around in the top 15 for a while having fun fights. And then he's just been away for the last two years. And it's been really unfortunate. So when I went back and I did all the research for Alejandro Perez, he's a guy that trained out of Entram gym before. I mean, Johnny Munoz is there now. Brandon Moreno's been there. But for Perez, he's been at AKA for a while. So you like to see that out of the guy from Aguas Calientes, Mexico. And for Johnny Eduardo, he has Muay Thai tattooed on his stomach and he trains at a Novo Uniao. I think that should tell you exactly what you need to have. But for Perez, he lost to Cody Stamen. Not a lot of shame in that. You lose to Song Yedong that violently by knockout. It's bad. It's actually really bad. But you can kind of understand it. Those are big names. Perez won the Ultimate Fighter. He's 7-3-1 in the UFC. Like, that's, that's pretty darn good. For Johnny Eduardo... I don't exactly know how old he is. We have to possibly do carbon dating. That's not good. The other thing, I don't know what Johnny Eduardo has over the UFC, but this is the crazy thing. He was in UFC 2, UFC 3, and UFC 4, the video game. He's 3 and 4, and he debuted in the UFC, and I had to write it down because it's been so long. Like, his UFC wins over Jeff Curran, Eddie Wineland, and Manny Gamburin, like when are you, other than Eddie Wineland, who's still kind of doing it, I know he had a loss to Sexy Mexi, but it's kind of crazy, the the UFC debut of Johnny Eduardo, UFC 134, Silva versus Okami, in 2011, he lost to Rafael Asensio by decision, Johnny Eduardo, not the greatest record in the UFC, and th that's kind of the crazy thing too, we have to back it up a little bit, you lose to Asensio, who was prime Asensio, you lose to Aljamain Sterling in 2015, who was still kind of fine in his way. You got knocked out by Matthew Lopez, who's yeah. no longer in the UFC. He wasn't great. And then you get submitted by Nathaniel Wood in 2018. I don't know what the hell, Johnny Eduardo, you're going to get. But I will say, the last time he won a fight in the UFC was 2016 over Manny Gamburin. So, 
for me, I look at this fight. I have an unknown Johnny Eduardo who is in his 40s Bantamweight, who at his best is a very technical striker against Alejandro Perez that can really get it done in a lot of different ways, who's still only 32 years old, coming off a disgusting knockout a few years ago, switched camps to AKA. I think it should be fire with fire in this one. So when I look at the odds, little bit of a head scratcher, somewhat. I mean, Perez open a minus 200 favorite, minus 217 on best fight odds. Eduardo open a plus 170, is plus 184. But it's just such a weird fight. And for Johnny Eduardo, I don't know if you remember the story from 2020 in the summer when Eduardo was still years away from a fight. He called out Sugar Sean O'Malley. And his call out was this. And I will read it word for word from a Guillermo Cruz article, MMA Fighting. I want to fight the stoner, Eduardo told MMA Fighting. I really want to trade hands with the agricultural scientist. Matt, your thoughts on this fight? And his call-out of Sean O'Malley over a year ago. Is that a compliment or a call-out? I don't know. Anyways, I ha- we talk a lot about, oh, there's question marks. When there's a question mark around how old you are, that's a pretty big question mark. And here's the thing about Perez. This is a pretty good rebound fight for him to come back into the UFC. It's okay. You're fighting Johnny Eduardo. Yes, he's a dangerous striker, and there's a few things to watch out for. But for the most part, as long as you push a pace, as long as you go for a few takedown attempts and make this an MMA fight, it should be a fairly winnable fight for Perez. Now, I understand people might worry about his durability after that Song Yidong fight, and it might actually take him a couple shots to kind of get used to it, you know? He might not react well to some of the damage early on in this fight, but I still feel like if he can get over the initial hurdle of a 41 to 43-year-old's cardio, then I think Perez should have this one. Yeah, I've got Alejandro Perez. I think he wins in the majority of the different aspects of MMA in this one. I mean, yeah, Eduardo looks bodied up on the Instagram. Seriously, he does. He is training out of Novo Niel, like I had mentioned. But Alejandro Perez, I think, has all the answers to the questions that Johnny Eduardo is going to pause. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Fausto Carmona of MMA that is Johnny Eduardo. Both wow. of us in this one going with the Mexican fighter. Alejandro Perez to get the win representing Aguas Calientes, Matt. I absolutely love this fight. Big time fight card headlined by Santos Walker. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. Like couple of fighters me. looking to rebound off of terrible UFC debuts. We have Switzerland, Stephanie Egger. Not often I get to say that we have a Swiss MMA fighter. She's taking on Knoxville's own Shanna Young, the Shanimal. Not a big fan of that nickname. She looks absolutely bodied up on the Instagrams. And she's a fighter that has spent time at 135 and at 125. Her short notice debut was against... Well, somebody who's on this card and Macy Chasson, and for Stephanie Egger, her debut was against somebody that featured prominently in every single UFC promo they had. Not Brian Ortega, it's Tracy Cortez. Tracy Cortez, and for Stephanie Egger, Matt, let's throw it on back. We have a 15-minute card break, and if you haven't checked it out, it's our second channel, at 15-minute card break over on the IGs and the TikToks. But we have a rookie review because Stephanie Egger is one of the more credentialed fighters that you're going to find not just inside of the cage, but outside of the cage with her judo. So let's throw it on back there, and then we'll update you in this fight. Malecki's out, Egger's in. What do we know about Stephanie Egger? I mean, Stephanie Egger, so far, black belt in judo that she earned many, many years ago. And if you look down through her total uh, record outside of the cage in MMA, because she's a late bloomer, I mean, 5'1 at 32 years of age, what has she really done, Craig? I mean, she's meddled and competed at, listen, 
you you pick the the tournament for judo she's been in it and she's meddled in it and since then really rounded out her game blue belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu uh she's an adcc european champ she competed at the 2019 adcc world championships lost in the finals to gabby garcia who outweighs her by probably 100 pounds and it went into overtime in that one lost so on points no shame in that you know that stephanie egger is good at the takedowns good at jiu-jitsu and don't just take my word for it Go back and watch some of Stephanie Egger's fights. And the thing that I like before I let you go off, Matt, is the fact that Stephanie Egger does something that we actually saw, and this is a poor example, but it ties in at 135. Ronda Rousey was so good at throws above the waist. She could really just ragdoll her opponents around. Stephanie Egger, a lot taller and thinner than Rousey, but she's able to do a lot of the same things. Also, her striking quite good, and I know you're going to talk about one of her major wins, but her striking is very good. She can mix in the kick. She throws nice punches down the middle. She does leave herself susceptible. She will throw some wild looping shots. Uh, but she can stick behind the nice jab. Apart from that, Stephanie Egger, well-rounded enough. But it's that judo and jiu-jitsu background that she has that I think matches up very well against Tracy Cortez. I agree fight. 100%. When you go through Egger's... Uh, past record, and we do this a lot, well, not even a lot, we do this for every fighter, you look through the past record, kind of see the level of competition, a lot of people making their UFC debut have fought a lot of those O&Os, 1-1s, 0-1s, Edgar fought semi-decent talent in over at Rise, and you probably heard of the name King Reyna before, she beat her in one of her first fights, well, one of her first six MMA fights, so that's a really impressive thing to do when you go over there, fight not only one of Ryzen's better fight, better women's fighters, but one of kind of the faces of their organization, or at least at the time, put on an impressive performance, her grappling is really good and she is great at going for the throws and then going immediately into a submission so she'll hit you with that arm throw if you do leave an arm out she'll attack that if she gets your back she'll do the same so stylistically this is a really interesting matchup because it's going to come down to will the size and strength of Egger kind of outweigh the skills of her for Egger and we had talked about it I mean you look at her debut was against Judith Ruiz who at this point six and five she just made her Bellator debut in the last uh, calendar year all right but Judith Ruiz pretty good name um on the European scene then she beat Mara Romero Barella, who I get it, just got cut by the UFC. But still, that's really good competition to be taking on uh, on the regional scene, especially okay. in your second fight. First and second fight, you would mention the fight against Reyna. And this is where, to me, it gets very interesting. I think this fight stylistically matches up a lot like a fight that we had recently with a name that one of these fighters has faced, not in MMA, but has faced in the past. Stephanie Egger, when she was competing at ADCC, took on Yulia Stolyarenko back in the uh, 2019 World Championships. All right, so for Stephanie Egger, you take on Gabby Garcia in pure grappling. You have a win over King Reyna in MMA. Pretty darn good stuff. I picked Egger to beat Tracy Cortez, and she got heavily out-wrestled and didn't really get a chance to get moving in that fight. And for Shanna Young... Kind of the same thing can be said, but she took on a decent striker, Macy Chasson, who's not necessarily known for wrestling. No, exactly. That was kind of the surprising thing to see from Chasson. It was going to be a good fighter, at least you thought going into it, because, okay, Shane Young, she's a great striker, Chasson, same thing, and then Macy all of a sudden decided, hey, I'm a pretty good MMA fighter, and I can switch this up. Now, I guess we'll talk more about Macy's evolution later on, but it was a really hard UFC debut for both of these fighters, and I'm honestly going to be a little bit tougher on Stephanie Egger, because we saw her get out grappled when that is her specialty. 
that's a really big issue. And you talked about it. She does have the judo background. She competes in jiu-jitsu. Like, her grappling is world-class, but in practice and in the cage, it didn't look that way against Tracy Cortez whatsoever. And Cortez is a good wrestler, but I don't even think Tracy Cortez is in the higher tier of wrestling in the division. I would say she's closer to Carla Esparza than she is to Tatiana Suarez, and she's probably even below uh, Carla Esparza. And is Tracy Cortez actually a bantamweight, or is and, she a flyweight? And that was the thing, too. To see Edgar, who looked like the much bigger fighter, just get out-muscled consistently in that fight, it was just really tough to see. And for Edgar... I'm not surprised that they did give her another fight, but I, I don't really know if she is UFC caliber. She didn't really show as many dimensions of her game as you'd hope. On the feet, Tracy Cortez is pretty basic, and if you are the longer fighter, you should be able to get from point A to point B fairly easily on a fighter like Cortez, but Edgar didn't even really show the ability to do that. She was so worried with the takedown attempts from Tracy Cortez that she wouldn't even really let her own game go. Now, I will say, Stephanie Edgar, great up kicks. Hurt Tracy Cortez with one of those. Nico Price, another guy on this card known for his outkicks. But it was one of the few flashes of brilliance, I would say, from her UFC debut that you can shine hope on. But I just don't like what we saw from Anger. When you are a grappler coming into the cage, it would be nice for you to have some success in the grappling department. Now, when I look at this fight, yeah, this is a clash of styles. Edgar is a pure grappler. Shannon Young has some grappling and wrestling credentials in her back pocket. Wrestled in high school on the guys team. She also wrestled, and I want to make sure I get it right, at King. University and there was one website it might have even been the Invicta site that said that she was an All-American but I couldn't find it anywhere else online so take that with a little bit of a grain of salt but when I look at Shanna Young very decent striking she has a karate background a little bit of a black belt there as well and that's where you see her game shine through I think her best win of her career was very early on when she took on wham bam Pam Sorensen and got a win there but other than that it's losses to some pretty notable fighters. The 5-on-in, a loss to Sarah Alpar by finish on Contender that's Series. That's bad. She lost to Miranda Maverick. That was the Invicta Phoenix Series. And that's the other thing. The UFC and ESPN have uh, Shannon Young's record as 8-4. and four, But I think they're counting those one-round Phoenix Series they fights. Shouldn't. And I'm not. It's 7-3. It's and three. So she beats uh, Maiju Sotama. And she lost to her in Invicta uh, Phoenix Series. But she won in a real fight. And then she loses to Macy on. She's been out for a year and seven months. For Egger, she's been out almost a full year. So yeah, it, it really is, again, clash of styles. When I look at the odds for this one, Young opened the favorite at a minus 150. She's now a plus 102 underdog. Egger opened the underdog, plus 130. She's now at a minus 123. We haven't seen the topology votes. I'm going to go, Matt. Under over 60% Shanna Young. I'm going to say over. I think it's 70-30. All right, we look at them. Holy smokes, 729 votes, 59% young, 92% by decision, 41% have Edgar, 75% by decision. And this is where it gets squirrely when we make a pick on this one, because this is a weird fight. It's unfortunate that, you know, with, with both of these fighters had so-and-so records coming into the UFC. For Edgar, obviously, it was 5-1 and one against decent competition, but the last one that she had was over a fighter that was 4-4. Four and four. It was really hard to tell what you were going to get. I know, obviously, there's some trepidation with the pick. So, who are you going with here? I think the physicality of Young is going to play a big factor in this fight. Whether or not it means that she can take Edgar's down to the mat or just hold her up against the cage, I still think that it's going to be a massive factor in this fight. If you can get out-muscled, out-wrestled by 
by a 125er. I am going to have concerns about you fighting a fairly big Bantamweight at that in Young. So ever so slightly, I will side with Shayna Young. But I'm sure there's a version of Stephanie Eggers out there who can judo hip toss Young onto her head. And I remember like Ronda Rousey. I just don't think we're going to see it. I think that's the one that we're going to get. I like Edgar in this fight because again, both of these fighters have a strength where it's the other fighter's weakness. So it's, yeah, it's it really is a bit of a toss up for me. But I do like Edgar with those credentials. She's not taking on a Tracy Cortez type in this fight. So I'll go with the Swiss native, Stephanie Edgar. You've got the American here in Shanny Young. Absolutely wild card with Santos taking on Walker up at the top. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's keep locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's get into it. It's not looking that way, but when I reach the age of 36, I'd love to have a body like Douglas Silva. Day on Draj, Matt. This weekend, we have D Silva taking on Gaetano Pirello. And for D Silva, one of the times Joe Rogan announced one of his fights, he said that the guy looks like an anatomy chart. And he definitely does. And it's going to be interesting to see how he looks coming into this one, having turned 36 in the last three, four months. And his last fight was up at 145 against Lerone Murphy. Now, he did lose that one by decision. And he's one of the more interesting fighters in the UFC. Because if you look at his losses, they're against very, very good levels of competition. He lost to Rob Font about four years ago in a fight that was kind of going back and forth. Font was pushing a really great pace didn't let uh andrage kind of land his shots and then ultimately ends up finishing him on the mat after silva picks him up throws him and then goes into a guillotine he then beats marlon vera which was a very impressive fight he loses to Piotr Jan, where again he just can't get started and then he beats henan barrao it's an interesting fight for me because at one point andrage looked like hey this guy could really be something in this division, and he's taking on Gaetano Pirello, who represents Italy and Belgium. And we're going to throw it on back to a 15-minute card breaks rookie review for Pirello, who came in on somewhat a short notice taking on uh, the Pacific Northwest's own Ricky Simone. Now going in to face El Tigre, Gaetano Pirello out of Belgium. And I have it up on the screen, Italy, uh, or Belgium by way of Italy. But this dude is a striker. And I know a lot of people are going to draw on the fact that he fought Arnold Allen six years ago or over six years ago and he lost that one by decision. But if you go through and watch his fights, very, very aggressive fighter, very quick to close distance. He loves the tie clinch. He loves to throw knees up the middle. He throws a lot of power strikes. His cardio is half decent. His grappling's not that great. But overall, he's a very exciting fighter. And a little bit surprised that this is who they tapped to be the short notice replacement because he hasn't fought in a little over a year. Somewhat similar to Francisco Figueredo that we also have on this card. And for Gaetano Pirello, again, you just have to really speak to the, the striking roots. He's a K1 champ in Europe. He's trained with some of the best in the business. I know in one of his uh, recent fights... And there's a lot of tape on Gaetano Pirello. So you can't be lazy on this one. But he had Tom Duquenois in his corner. Tom, the fire, fire kid. kid. Where are you at? Modeling. Tom Duquenois. But overall, going back and watching a lot of Gaetano Pirello fights, it's really exciting to watch him fight. Uh, he, he always brings it fight of the night type style if he gets matched up with a striker. I mean, you look at his last loss against Josiro Boye. I know Boye in his last fight ended up fighting Kurt Holoba on that card that they had down in Georgia there this past year. Kind of crazy. He lost that fight. He was on a heater. And that was a rematch because Pirello had won the first fight. Boye goes in there and, you know, it's not the most competitive fight at the start. Pirello's pouring it on him. Boye gets it to the ground and Pirello can't really get back up to his feet. And then if you watch the second round, Pirello 
really tries to pour it on again, and Boye lands a couple of good shots, lands a knee, and really stuns him. He lands some left hooks, stuns Pirello, and then finishes him. So Pirello can get finished. Now, I know that's the only knockout loss that he has in his career, and it was over two and a half years ago, so I wouldn't put a ton of stock into it. But you lost to that striker there, and there's questions in the grappling. Now you're taking on Ricky Simone in your UFC debut. This is a tricky one. Yeah, so let's just go over how you hyped Pirello. He'd get into a fight of the night style if he's matched up with, what was that? A striker. Wait. It's got to be a striker. Give me the Hulk Hogan. Oh, it's yeah, got to yeah. be a striker. So they're matching him up with Ricky Simone. With Gaetano Pirello, again, I like him in a striking bout with just about anybody. I mean, the guy is explosive, but you look at the last two fighters. Percy Herrera was not in a league whatsoever compared to Ricky Simone. And I get it. Percy Herrera is a striker. He's 6-4 and four going into that one. He was rail thin and just didn't look ready in that one. And then in the Enzo Maria Ezzi fight, he was 7-5. and five. That was uh, Pirello's last fight. He landed one liver shot, and then from that point on, the commentators wanted to say, well, he doesn't even look like he wants to be in there. He looked hurt. But he wasn't accepting damage. He wasn't even accepting kicks. And then Pirello goes in, throws a knee, and drops him. And the fight's over. Gaetano Pirello is one of those guys, like, he's still only 28 years old as well. Both of these guys 28. But I feel like kind of the, the times maybe passed. I mean, unless he puts on, if he puts on a statement fight in this one, holy smokes, Gaetano Pirello, uh, you know, everybody in Belgium should be excited. But Italian MMA has been in a weird spot. I mean, you got Danilo Belardo, Alessio Di Chirico, but you've got uh, Marvin Vittori way up here. So for Gaetano Pirello, he can really kind of capitalize on that. I know Al Zalino would like that over on Twitter. So for Gaetano Pirello in that fight, he had zero success, Matt. It Absolutely none. So what did you gain from that and maybe some of the fights that he had coming into the UFC? Well, you couldn't really gain that much from the Ricky Simone fight. But if anyone can gain from that fight, it will be Douglas Silva Diandraj. Now, I guess we'll get into that later. But for Perella, he is a really good striker at distance. I think he has great power for the division. But he's one of these fighters. And we're going to have to find some fighter to be like the face of this category. But he's a good fighter at range when the opponent likes to stay at that range. Now, if you close that distance, he does struggle to fight with guys on the inside because of his size. And it is odd. He's not the biggest guy for this weight division, but he does fight much bigger than his size is. Like I said, he's got a great kick to the body. He likes to go to the leg and to the body. And he's really good with setting up his kicks too. He will do one-twos and then throw leg kicks behind them. And it's always something you have to watch out for when you are at range with Perella. But... The issue that you saw in the Ricky Simone fight was if Ricky just decided, hey, we're not striking. All I'm doing is going for takedowns, going for takedowns. Perella didn't even show the ability to create separation off of the initial takedown. And that's what really concerns me moving forward. 135 has a lot of wrestlers in it. And I know not everybody's a Cody statement in the world, but even Douglas Andrade is a really good wrestler for an unranked fighter. And if you show not even basic takedown defense or the ability to get back up from your back, I'm going to work worry about you fighting a guy like Andrade who has shown the ability in the past to take down guys like even Chido Vera and Chido Vera is a great jiu-jitsu black belt he's got great submission wins and like we all know Chido Vera he's a really really tricky fighter on the mat Andrade beat Vera 
In a very similar way that I'm assuming he's going to fight Perella. He's going to push the pace. You really feel the physicality of Andrade when you fight him. He never gives you the opportunity to breathe. Now, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because at the age of 36, he can't always keep that tough pace up for 15 minutes. Now, I don't think he has bad cardio by any means, especially for being as heavily muscled as he is. I think he has fairly good cardio, especially with the output. I just do worry about him when he does fight those upper-level guys, and that's been the issue with Andrade, you had mentioned it. When he loses, they're bad losses. Like, the Piotr Jan fight is a terrible fight, but that's the thing. You lost to Piotr Jan, who really cares? Even going back to the Rob Font fight, he did get outboxed and outworked by Rob Font, but what? Rob Font's ranked, what, third, fifth in the world right now? So... It's not that I worry about the losses. It's just what has happened in those losses. Like, Perello, if he can strike from the outside, could probably string together some success like Rob Font was able to do against Andrade. Yeah, I mean, I look at this one. For D. Silva, he's 4-4 four four in the UFC. His fight's at featherweight. The Takugov fight, but that was on short notice. He was replacing Thiago Tavares. Then he fought Burrell and Murphy. Those ones all at 145. This is his first fight at 135 since the Piotr Jan fight two years and eight months ago. So we'll see how he makes out making that weight cut. The ones at Bantamweight, Gibson, Briones, Font, Vera, and Jan. And for D. Silvey's earned takedowns against Murphy, Vera, Font, and Briones. His only UFC wins in Brazil and in Mexico. So it'll be interesting to see how he makes out in the States for this one. But yeah, he also walks out to, and I want to make sure I pronounce this properly, but I might butcher it. Conquistando o Impossible. And if you want to listen to a song that'll just tear at your heartstrings, it's D. Silva's walkout song, or at least one that he's walked out to in the past. But Matt, I look at this one, as far as those odds, those pesky, pesky odds are concerned, D. Silva's a decent-sized favorite in this one. He opened a minus 200, he's minus 245 or thereabouts. Gitano Perello opened a plus 170, he's a plus 198. If we look at the topology votes, 817 of them. Uh, yeah, 88% Andrade, 76% by decision. For the 12% that have Pirello, 45% uh, by decision, and 35% by knockout. If De Silva's weight cut doesn't go horribly, horribly wrong, which we can factor in on question mark kicks on Saturday, if this fight actually takes place, yeah, I've got Doug Douglas Silva at Andrade. I think he just puts the wrestling shoes on. I've seen Perello struggle with wrestling outside of the UFC, let alone that Simone fight. Again, you can go back and watch some of them. Uh, the fight that he had against Josiro Boye. Uh, he's had a couple of different rematch fights, and he struggled, you know, in the first fight and so on and so forth. But, yeah, he really has struggled with the wrestling and a guy that's an uber-talented striker. And I think, yeah, he could definitely hold his own on the feet because Silva Andrade will... Throw a couple strikes and then reset. And he takes little times like that. Maybe you can capitalize on it. But I like uh, Douglas Andrade here. Yeah, you said it perfectly too at the beginning. Unless Andrade's weight cut or age just completely catch up to him. And really you don't know about those things until he steps into the cage. That's kind of the problem. But if all things are the same and if I do get the Andrade that I believe I will. He's beaten guys like Perello in the past. And honestly, he's beat guys like Perello who have added dimensions to their game. So I do like Andrade. Both of us in this one going with the Brazilian Douglas Silva de Andrade to get the win. We've got a big time slate of cards in the main event. A couple of Brazilian bangers. Johnny Walker taking on Tiago Santos. You're not going to want to miss it. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. This might be my favorite fight on the card. We have Devontae Smith taking on Jamie Mullerkey. These guys are two absolute bangers that don't know how to have a boring fight. And if you look at it so far in the UFC for Devontae Smith, 
He debuted at that big 25th anniversary Denver card, picked up a giant win there over Julian Arosa. Then he ends up finishing Dong Hyun Ma, earns a bonus. He loses to Kama Worthy on a pay-per-view where they kind of hit each other, and then they smiled, and they tapped gloves, and Joe Rogan didn't like it. The fans booed him, and then he got knocked out in a flurry. So that was kind of crazy, and then he ends up picking up a big win over Justin James' last time out where he just bullied him. James went for a takedown, almost earned it, and then got reversed. Smith ends up on top, hammers away at him, and at the end of the round, uh, James had a giant puffed up by. The doctor said, well, that's enough of that. So for Smith, it's been absolute tear, except for the common worthy fight. For Jamie Mullerick in the U UFC, if you just look at the numbers in terms of wins and losses, it's been the opposite. Because his big win is over comma worthy, where worthy strikes... Backs up, puts his hands down. Mullerke just catches him with a left hook. That's my right hand. Left hook with the pen in my hand. And knocks him out cold. So a great win there for Jamie Mullerke. And that was one that bucked the trend because for Worthy, he was bad at 145. He'd get knocked out there, but not at 155. And Mullerke said, no, well, that can happen. In the Farah Zium fight, me and a lot of other people scored at 29-28 for Mullerke. Zium ended up getting all the judges' uh, okay, regard. You, you act like it wasn't a close fight. It was a close fight. If you look on MMA decisions, it was something like 13-2 to 2 in favor of Mullerke. But still, it was a competitive fight. And then he had a halfway competitive fight with Brad Riddell that earned fight of the night honors, even though one judge had it 30-26 for Riddell. So for Mullerke, good striking, decent wrestling. For Devontae Smith... Really good striking. Pretty decent wrestling, too. I, I love this because this is going to be fireworks. It should be a phenomenal fight. Now, we kind of have to start with Kama Worthy to really tell the story of this fight because I think Devontae Smith beats Kama Worthy 99 times out of 100. Oh, he's a I minus 1,000 favorite. Exactly. I think he just loses that first time because they're friends. And it was weird. They had trained together in the past and there was zero animosity at all. Like, they were almost cheering for each other as they were walking to the cage. That's how friendly these guys were. And it was a weird knockout loss too because, like, yeah, they're, they'd land a strike, they'd be friends, and then the first clean shot that hits Devontae Smith actually hurts him. And you can tell, like, he's almost shocked. He's like, wow, why have you done this to me? I thought we were friends. But, I really do think that that loss is an anomaly. I know it's a hard loss. And listen, I'm the guy who harps on people for having that one bad loss in their career. Look at Jonathan Pierce. He's gone on to completely prove me wrong. But if you look at the Devontae Smith who fought Justin James, he had none of the issues that the Devontae Smith who fought Kama Worthy did. He was extremely aggressive in that fight. He threw with vicious intent. He threw with power. And... He's not a fighter who really gasses himself out, even though he is a massive power puncher. I would say he's an intelligent power puncher. He works behind his jab, and I'm going to give you full credit, because you're right. You should say this before we started filming. Devontae Smith is one of the few guys who, he doesn't just jab, and he does have a great single jab. He double jabs. He triple jabs. He works behind his jab to a great effect, and that's what you have to love about Devontae Smith. It might not be that Devontae Smith gets in the top 15 immediately because of that bad loss to Kama Worthy, but if you always take the best of what we've seen from Devontae Smith, if you take the best version of his jab, the best version of his power, and the wrestling that he's shown... He really could be a guy who could make his way to the top 15 eventually. I'm not saying at the end of this year. I'm not saying by the end of next year. But he does have the toolkit that has a potential top-ranked fighter in.
Those great points that you had a day ago that you were going to use in a video, I'll, I'll just I'll just take them from you. I also the, said he had a great the, chat. The crazy thing for Jamie Mullerkey, a guy who has a finish loss to Alexander Volkanovsky, but has gone on to train with him quite extensively. You absolutely love to see it, but he's a guy that just continues to get better. And you talk about it, the boxing, the head movement of Devontae Smith. It's the footwork too. It's a nice L step. It's going away from the power hand of his opponents. And he doesn't tend to dart in all that much, but he did not worthy fight. And he definitely got rocked there. For Mullerkey, really good boxing combinations. The one thing that I worry about, he'll throw them. And then when he comes back to reset, his hands are just a little bit low. You can definitely get pumped by that jab of Devontae Smith. But both guys have a good opportunity in this one. The odds reflect that. They open at par. Smith right now, minus 158 favorite. For Mullerkey, he sits now at a plus 131. If we go over to Topology, we have a look at the votes. 822 total votes. 70% Smith. 75% by knockout for the 30% that have Mullerkey 55% by knockout so a lot of people envisioning a finish in this one I think this has fight of the night written all over it I'm really looking forward to it I think leg kicks are going to play a big part in it as well and both guys can throw them I mean for Smith it's usually a nice low calf kick for Mullerkey might aim a little bit higher but again both very effective at what they do. At the end of the night, I like every part and parcel of Devontae Smith's game. And as long as he can keep those hands up there and really kind of withstand the pressure of Mullerkey, which is very hard to do. Mullerkey will fight a boxing fight if he's fighting a wrestler. He can fight a wrestling fight if he's fighting a striker. We'll see which Mullerkey we get out of this one, but very well rounded out of the Australian. I love the fight. I just ever so slightly edge Smith in this one. This thing about Jamie Mullerkey, he kind of reminds me of Lonzo Ball. First basketball cop of the day. Hear me out. His shot looks terrible, but it goes in. With Jamie Mullerkey, his striking style is sort of a stiff, brooding forward style. The problem that I do have with picking Devontae Smith, and I'm going to pick him, but just hear me out. This is the one issue that I do have with the prediction. Since Jamie Mullerkey isn't that traditional with his striking sense and the sort of hitch to his game, if you will, I could see Devontae Smith being caught by one of those delayed time shots, similar to Kama Worthy. I don't think the strike that Mullerkey landed on Worthy was by accident. I know it was an early knockout, and it's hard to set things up a minute into a fight, but Mullerkey has that type of a style. He did the same thing to Brad Riddell. He rocked Brad Riddell and hard with a right hand because he struck it like a weird offbeat that Brad Riddell was not expecting. If he is able to land one of those weird in-between shots. He has a great chance to win, but I still think Devontae Smith has the more overall game. Both of us going with Factory X's own Devontae Smith to get the win. Let us know who you have down below in the comments section. Can't wait for this card. Co-main event. Holy smokes. Kevin Holland taking on Kyle Dawkins and in the main event, Tiago Santos and Johnny Walker. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. This weekend, it's the end of an era. It has been reported by MMA Fighting that this will be the retirement bout, or it's looking like the retirement bout, for the former UFC Bantamweight title challenger, Rowdy Betch Cohea. Is it Rowdy? Is it Pitbull? I don't know what it is, but Matt, for Betch Cohea, this is it. It's been quite the career. Somebody who went pro, I'd say later on in life, and she's taking on a very talented prospect in Carol Hosa at just 26 years old. The five on in is spectacular. She's taken on a good level of competition in the UFC, and she's passed every test so far. Matt, for Betch Cohea, that five on in's not that great, unfortunately. It's been rough. It's just been a rough turn of events for Betch Cohea. She really is a product of early women's MMA, and 
she was a very aggressive fighter. She had good power, but that were really the only two areas of her game that she had to speak for. I even go back to the Shayna Baszler knockout. Yeah, she knocked out Shayna Baszler. You mean WWE Shayna Baszler? Yeah, they used to fight. Shayna Baszler was a member of this group called the Four Horsewomen. Hear me out. So, Bechkohan basically made it a point that I'm going after these Four Horsewomen of MMA. Because, again, early women's MMA, they're just not, there weren't that many fighters around. And since these four women trained together, it was kind of a unique thing. So, she went after these women. She beat Shayna Baszler. She beat Jessamyn Duke. And then she made her way to a title shot against Ronda Rousey. And I know those two fighters don't really sound like the level of competition that gets you a title shot. But you have to remember, when Ronda Rousey was in her prime, the one great thing about Ronda Rousey was she fought like every three months. Ronda Rousey's prime lasted for like a year and a half. I have to remind myself this all the time. She really only fought in the UFC for like three years, but it felt like she was around for much, much longer. I, big spiel aside, Bench Kohan made it a point to go after these women to try to get a title shot, and that boosted her profile significantly. It made Bench Kohan one of the most popular fighters in women's MMA. And since then, it's kind of been a big disservice to her and to her career, because when you fight someone like Ronda Rossi, and yes, she lost very early in very devastating fashion, but still, then you're only going to fight people like... Holly Holm, you're only going to fight people like Raquel Pennington. You're only going to fight those other top-tier fighters in this division. And i got to be honest, I never felt like Betch Cohea was at that point to begin with. She kind of fast-tracked herself to a title shot. And after, it was like, okay... Betch, you're probably not going to be around for that much longer. Now, yes, she's managed to stick around, and it's not like she hasn't won since that title shot. She, ha she has had a few good performances, but my issue is that Betch Cohea's game has never really evolved. I still think Betch Cohea is a similar fighter to the one who beat, Shayna, who beat Shayna Baszler all those years ago, and I think Carol Hosa is a much more modern MMA fighter, and it's really hard for the old to beat the new in MMA. I put it up there for the gym for Betch Cohea. I went with, instead of Pitbull Brothers, Team Cohea, because she does seem to have her own gym going down in Brazil. She's got a very active Instagram game, very much an influencer there, and for her, again, yeah, that five on in. She's got a draw against Mary Renault, and then the losses are against good competition, Holly Holm, and then Irene Aldana. That was back two years and four months ago. She beat Sajara Eubanks two years ago, and then a year and two months ago, Penny Kanzad. It's been a lot of injuries for Betch Cohea. She had a bad eye injury, and so on and so forth. For Carol Hosa in the UFC, the wins are over Lara Procopio by split decision. You really could have argued that either way. She beat Vanessa Mello quite handily, and then she beat Jocelyn Edwards, who... Listen, I don't have to tell you. Very good striker. Not a good grappler. That's how Carol Hosa was able to get that one done. For Cohea, though, just in the last couple of weeks, she picked up her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt. So, neat to see. But, Matt, when I look at the odds for this one, maybe not a surprise. Cohea open a plus 235. She's a plus 300 right now. For Hosa, open a minus 275. She's about a minus 391. Again, best fight odds. The votes on Topology not even close. 851 of them, 94% for Hosa, 84% uh, by decision for the 6% that have Koya, 64% by decision. For me, it's always been the fight IQ of Betch Koya, and you can queue up all the memes of her hitting herself in the face and getting dazed, or who was it? Was it against Penny Kanzad where she walked back to her corner and the fight was still going on? Just, like, yeah. She's just had weird spots in her fights or spots where she has a lot of success in, in her boxing and she is a good boxer she really is but she has a lot of success and then she just kind of stops it's like okay we gotta keep going if you want to win the fight for hosa fluid in her striking very good on the ground very good top pressure i like carol hosa in this fight i i think carol hosa 
it's a division that's not very deep. So for a few more wins for Hosa, you're right up there. You're fighting those top 10 fighters. I think Hosa is going to be a top 10 for a while. So I, I do like Hosa in this one. I think Carol Hosa is going to win this fight and fight Misha Tate next. There's the prediction. All right, Matt. Both of us going with Carol Hosa to go on a legend killing tour. Exactly. We have Hosa to win. And hey, Maybe Betch Cohea goes full Alan Joban in the retirement fight. She gets a big win here and is able to ride off into the sunset. But yeah, both of us having Hosa in the main event, Matt. Similar thing. Couple of Brazilian strikers. We've got Johnny Walker taking on Thiago Santos. You're not going to want to miss that. Let's keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. At Fight Night Picks, sometimes you just have to chalk things up to chance. You have to chop things up to luck. And sometimes you just get things absolutely wrong. And I have to say, to start this video off, I don't know what Antonina Shevchenko is great at. I don't know if she does. And I really have had a tough read on Casey O'Neill coming into the UFC. And let that be known. Because for O'Neill... Her father, a great striker, he owned or was a part of Hex Fighting Series. She comes over to the States, she trains at Extreme Couture, she's billed out of Scotland by way of Australia and in the UFC and with the work that she's put in at Extreme Couture, she's looked very good. I mean, against Lara Procopio in her last fight, I had Procopio overwhelmingly. And in the first round, it was looking pretty good. And then in the second round, O'Neal was able to, I don't know if you'd want to say take over because she was able to really take over and have a lot of success. And then in the third round of that fight, she earns the submission victory. For Antonina Shevchenko, I know she's a great striker. I know who her sister is. But let me back it up a little bit and explain why I don't have a good read on her. Because for Shevchenko, when she fought Ariane Lipsky, it was like, oh, you're a good grappler now because you weren't against Chukagin. And then in her last fight against Andrea Lee, it was like, oh, you're that grappler again, like you were against Chukagin. So that's the thing with Shevchenko. I have a hard time telling what kind of a fighter she is fight in and fight out. She's almost 37 years old, by the way. And for King Casey O'Neill, at just 23, what, a few days shy of 24, she just continues to get better at her grappling. And while her striking may not, and it's not nearly as polished as Shevchenko's, she has that one X factor of such a good ground game that can really stifle top women at the flyweight division. I really think she does have that kind of a ground game. I'm not kidding. When Casey O'Neill takes people down to the ground, it's not just her top pressure. It's her ability to pass guard, to threaten with submissions, to threaten with ground and pound. She's a very active fighter on the map, and that's a really important thing about O'Neill's game. She doesn't just sit and wait and wait for things to come to her. And that's a great attribute that really any contender should have. Go out there and get after it. If Alexander Volkanovsky proved anything. It's, hey, when you're on the mat, be active. Because when you're stationary, that's when you can get caught in submissions. That's when things can get dicey. But if you're active, you're throwing ground and pan, if you're making your opponent react to you and not the other way around, you're going to be having a lot of great success. And that's what O'Neill's been able to show off throughout her last two fights in the UFC. And the Procopio win... I think I had O'Neal in that one. I don't remember, but still, I remember the first round in that fight, and I was like, Ugh, I'm definitely wrong in my prediction. But Casey O'Neal, in what I guess you can say classic Casey O'Neal fashion for a fighter who's 7-0, but when she is able to implement her ground game, it really is night and day. And in Antonina Shevchenko, the inconsistencies are the only thing that has been consistent throughout her UFC career. It has been. 
yeah, wow, her grappling looks great in one fight, and then it's a massive liability in her next fight, and I just never know what a perfect Shevchenko fight looks like, you know? Like, if her and Pavel are game planning, what do you think Pavel tells Antonina of, okay, this is your perfect game plan? I would assume it's strike at the outside for volume and then go for your own offensive takedowns, but the issue is that her takedown defense isn't that good, so if other fighters are the ones to initiate the scrambles or initiate any really uh, wrestling sequence, they're normally the ones who are going to end up on top in that scramble, which Casey O'Neill is very good at. And the flip side, too, is... Antonina Shevchenko on the feet is not her sister. At all. Like, she's not a great fighter at moving forwards. I would say she's a good counter-striker like her sister is, but the thing about Valentina is... She bounces on her feet, and yes, when you're moving forward, she's at her most dangerous. But if you're going to stand there and wait for her, at least throughout the last little run, she goes out there and gets after it. She will put the volume on her opponent, and I don't really think that's a skill that Shevchenko's really been able to show off in the UFC up until this point. Do I think she's the better uh, striker than Casey O'Neill? Without a doubt. You're not going to get an argument from me there. But do I think that Antonina Shevchenko knows that she's the better striker than Casey O'Neill? I freaking hope so. But that's why the question mark around, because I think Antonina is going to shoot for a takedown at some point in this fight. And that's the problem. If Antonina shoots for a takedown offensively, it results in a scramble. Do you know what a scramble results in? Casey O'Neill in top position. If Casey O'Neill shoots for a takedown, what's that going to do? It's going to force a scramble. And scrambling just isn't something that Antonina's that great at. I think her jujitsu is good, but not great. I think her wrestling's good, but not great. I just think with Shevchenko, it is all those little, like, weird in-between X-factors. The stuff that, once Gilbert Burns figured out, he became, uh, you know, a championship caliber fighter if you will i i just have those question marks around shevchenko and if you haven't figured out by 36 almost 37 i wonder if you're ever going to figure that out through your mma career for casey o'neill she chains her takedowns together too if i don't get it i'm just going to keep working for it almost like nick maximo who came in last weekend and had a back and forth type of fight i could see that fight going similar to this fight as well and when i look at o'neill's overall numbers she only needed the one and she got the back against procopio it was all over but she gets one takedown there she gets four against shana dobson and then for shevchenko 50 percent takedown defense but for Shevchenko, it's been good names pretty well the entire time. She beats Jamie uh, Navarra over on Contender Series. And then it's a win over Gian Kim. A loss to Roxanne Montefiore two and a half years ago. She beats Lucia Pudzilova. Fight of the night. Submits her. Then she loses to, to Kagan and gets completely out-wrestled and out-grappled. Then she out-wrestles Ariane Lipsky and finishes her on the ground. And then she loses to Andrea Lee in the second round of their fight. And that was a great submission win for Andrea Lee too. Who again is another fighter that... I have a really hard time getting a read on. So when I look at the odds for this one, O'Neal opened as a minus 300. She's a minus 219 on best fight odds for Shevchenko. Open a plus 220. She's a plus 176. And if we look at the topology votes, they're not even close. 828 total votes, 83% O'Neal, 39% by decision, 43% by submission, 12% by knockout. For the 17% that have Shevchenko, 69% by decision. Matt, I've said it and I've let it be known. I still have a hard time picking this fight and let alone capping it and trying to understand Casey O'Neill, I think her ceiling top 15, I guess. It, here's the problem. It kind of depends on how she develops her own skills. Let's say Casey O'Neill decides, okay, 
All I care about is wrestling and jujitsu. I actually think if she just became that kind of a specialist. The Demi and Maya of the division. Exactly. She could get into that like top five category just being a specialist. I worry that, okay, if she does take the time to start growing her striking game more and doing unnecessary strikes. Let's say Casey O'Neill decides, okay, I'm going to develop a great kicking game now. Then I would start to be a little bit concerned because that's so far away from what she's naturally talented as. I kind of let the cat out of the bag with the whole scrambles X factor. I really do think that this fight is going to result in a lot of scrambles and I think it's gonna be hard to out scramble somebody like Casey O'Neill in this division so I do like O'Neill although I am a little worried with putting money on it or I would be because of how heavy of a favorite that she is because Antonina is such a question mark yeah I've got O'Neill in this one too I think if you just continue to work for those takedowns they'll find themselves so for me I'm going with the Skazi and Casey O'Neill both of us going with her as well you're not going to want to miss the End of this card, in the middle, at, at the top, you have Santos taking on Walker in the co-main. You have Holland taking on Dawkins. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. We've been spending most of our lives living in a grappler's paradise. We have Joe Selecki taking on Flash, Jared Gordon, and Matt. For Jared Gordon, he's lost by knockout. He's lost a fair bit by knockout, but he's lost against really good fighters. And that's the weird thing. You look at the five on in for Gordon. Knockout loss to Joaquin Silva almost three years ago. He comes back to beat Dan Moret. He loses to your champion, Charles Oliveira. And then big wins over a really good grappler. And Chris Fishgold and Danny Chavez that gets tired. Fought at 150 pounds of a catchweight against Jared Gordon. And looked bad. Like, he, he looked did. bad. And Jared Gordon looked very good. So, for Gordon, he's looked great in his last two fights. For Joe Selecki... Win over Jacob Bond with CFFC. Win over James Wallace on Contender Series. And in the UFC, beats Matt Wyman, beats Austin Hubbard, beats Jim Miller, and not just beats them, submits Austin Hubbard. And he didn't submit Jim Miller, which is probably one of the hardest things to do, but he absolutely dominated him in that fight. So... For both of these guys, they're coming in full head of steam. And I saw that respect in the odds when I wrote them down here. So minus 115 at open for Selecki's minus 137. For Jared Gordon, minus 105 at open, plus 112 right now. I'm surprised a little bit by the line, but not because, man, these guys have looked really good lately. Why are you surprised by the line? I think Joe Selecki should be a bigger favorite, if anything. That's why I said not oh, so okay. much. But again, both of these guys have really impressed me lately. This is the issue I always have with picking a Jared Gordon fight. Jared Gordon is very well-rounded. He is, and there's nothing you can take away from that. But my issue is that in his well-roundedness, he really puts the definition of jack-of-all-trades but master of none on another planet. He just does struggle with those guys who are specialists out there. And I know Charles Oliveira is the champion, so it's hard to put any negatives in that fight. A, that fight never should have happened. Ever. It was the dumbest matchmaking of all time. It really was because Charles Oliveira had won like six fights in a row all by first round stoppage and Jared Gordon was like two and two in his last four. So hey UFC do better. But my problem with Gordon is that I've seen him get out grappled even though he's a good grappler and the durability thing on the feet is always going to worry me. I always go back to the Carlos Diego Fajaya fight when I try to break down a Jared Gordon fight because at the start of the fight Jared Gordon's defending a few takedowns he's doing well with his boxing combinations but as the fight wears on and Carlos Diego Fajaya starts to get some of the feel on Jared Gordon he starts to understand oh this is how he's defending takedowns this is how he's doing things with his strikes. Hurts him on the feet, takes him down, gets that one opposite wrist control around his back, and absolutely pummels him on the mat. I just worry about Jared Gordon and his durability, especially at this weight class. Now, 
I shouldn't say that because at 155 pounds, I like Jared Gordon's durability a whole lot more than I did down at 145 pounds. A lot of his stoppages down there, I felt like were, hey, it's a bad weight cut and Jared Gordon's a pretty big guy. But still, he has missed weight down there. So maybe, hey, lightweight is the best place for him. I just worry about Jared Gordon because, again, when I think about how he's going to fight Joe Selecki, on the feet, I think Jared Gordon's the better striker. Yep. But I don't think he's a good enough striker to go out there and win a 50-minute fight on the feet. That's really something that I harp on, but it's something that matters. If Jared Gordon goes out there and knows that, okay, if I can box with Joe Selecki for a little bit, go for a takedown attempt, waste a few minutes doing that, and then get back up to the feet and start boxing, I think he can actually have a lot of success in this fight. Because even if you look at the Jim Miller fight for Joe Selecki, it was a good win for Joe Selecki. But he didn't win it nearly as impressively as a lot of people thought. And I understand Jim Miller's a good grappler, but Jim Miller's not the 32-year-old Jim Miller that we used to know and love for his grappling and for his wrestling exchanges. Like, Jim Miller's been a grappler a little bit at this stage of his career, so I'll be honest, I was a little let down by that performance from Joe Selecki. He looked good, but... He just kind of stayed in the guard of Jim Miller. He didn't get a lot of ground and pound off, and he never really threatened with submissions. He showed off good wrestling, which is something I always knew from Joe Selecki, but it was just... I would have wished that he had passed a little bit more. I wish he would have attacked a little bit more. And again, it's Jim Miller. He's great, and he's a great grappler, and he's got heart for days. But it was just one of those performances where it leaves a few question marks, and it leaves a few areas that Jared Gordon could capitalize on. Which I think a lot of people are going to be in agreement with you. I'm going to bring up a bad example, but you're going to see where I'm going with it. Forget about the fight that he had, but I did see it in a lot of the comments. I, I chalk it up to being on such short notice against such a good fighter, but... If you look at it, Sergei Spivak in his fight against Alexei Olenek, it surprised me. I thought Spivak looked really good in that fight. And for Alexei, why did they give him Greg Hardy? I don't know. Just but Sergei Spivak, I thought, looked really good in that fight. And I really put a lot of stock in that. I mean, he did well in just about every position he was in. And I put a lot of stock into it. But people in the comments section said, you should have finished him. He's an old guy. So on and so forth. Same thing for me in this one. Selecki, I thought, looked very good and very imposing against Jim Miller. But I can see a lot of people, and I'm sure you're going to be in the comments section, well, he should have been able to finish Jim Miller. So I brought up the odds in this one. I look at the votes on Topology. 849 of them, 85% Selecki, 73% by decision. For the 15% that have Gordon, 70, what is it, 6% by decision. I like Joe Selecki in this fight. Gordon is definitely better on the feet. Joe Selecki has been hard to hit on the feet in the periods that his fights have been there, but they typically don't go there. He fights very similar to his his teacher and his coach, and I'm talking about John Salter. I know his fight didn't go great against Gegard Mousasi, but when you boil it down, their games are very similar. Selecki here at 155. Height, reach-wise, everything... All very similar between these two guys, but I do like Selecki. I think he's going to be able to get it to the mat. Gordon's shown that he is very adept on the mat, not just against a guy like Fishgold, but against uh, Danny Chavez, who, man, I that's another guy. Like Danny Chavez, what what are you good at, buddy? What are you good at? Like kicks. I, I like Joe Selecki in this fight. Yeah, I do too. Joe Selecki not only has a smothering style, he has one that can threaten with submissions too. And I do think that if he could just draw out the grappling of Jared Gordon, a submission will present itself eventually. It might not in the first round, it might not in the second round, but I think that as you start to wear on Jared Gordon, those openings will start to get there. Matt, both of us going with Jim O's, Joe Selecki to get the win. Can't wait for this fight. And up at the tippity-top, you have Tiago Santos taking on Johnny Walker. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. I like the way you Welcome to the me. UFC. For a familiar face to a lot of different people, we have Money Mike Breeden coming in on short notice, taking on Alexander the Great Hernandez. 
Do I like guys named Alexander who then happen to have the nickname The Great? Well, some of them. I mean, Alexander Volkanovsky from this past weekend, he's definitely deserving of it. For Alexander Hernandez, a bit of an unfortunate nickname. If you really look at it for the five on in, I mean, the guy's two and three. And Mike Breeden has the opportunity right here to have a debut like Hernandez did when he took on Benel Dariush early on in his career. But if we do dissect that five on in for Hernandez, it is the loss to Cowboy Cerrone where he talked all the smack. Then he beat Francisco Trinaldo. But if you're Craig Allen and a lot of people in this world... If you're anybody outside of San Antonio. Yeah, you really don't think that Hernandez won that fight. Then he lost to Drew Dober by knockout. He beat... Chris Gritzmacher, and then he ends up losing to Thiago Moises by decision. Now, I can't fault him for some of those losses. I mean, they're against very good levels of competition. Alexander Hernandez at one point looked like not just a future top 15 fighter, but he looked like he could really climb the ranks. I mean, he has a great uh, physical size for this division. I mean, yeah, he might be a little bit shorter, but the way that he kind of plots in against his opponent, throws those long power shots, and he has range for a smaller guy and I say smaller but a shorter guy but then he does struggle when it gets into boxing range against certain guys the Drew Dober fight a perfect example I'm gonna disagree that Hernandez has a great size for this division I feel like he's undersized at lightweight I always have he's talked about even moving down to featherweight in the past I really don't think this is the best division for him and not just to be so hard like against what you said it's just for Alexander Hernandez, for his game to really be at 100%, it, he always has to take his opponent down because his striking is good and his wrestling is good. But when he mixes the two together, that's when Alexander Hernandez himself can become great. Look at the fight against Olivier Aubin-Mercier. And I know that was a weird fight. It was probably closer than a lot of people thought it was. But still, he beat that fight by out-grappling Aubin-Mercier. And if you beat a guy like that in that style, it means a lot more to me than if he just went out there and knocked him out in three seconds like he did against Benil Dariush. That's the issue with Alexander Hernandez. You talk about how, oh, you can't really fault him for a lot of those losses. And you're right. But the way that we talk about Alexander Hernandez means that, okay, you can't just be losing to these guys anymore. If we're going to talk about you as, okay, a potential top 15 or future top 10 guy, then you can't go out there and get head kicked by Cowboy after not really landing a single significant strike. That's why, for me, I've always felt like Hernandez was going to move down eventually. Now, I know he is kind of young, and he probably is still getting bigger, so maybe that move down would have been in the past now, but I've always felt like his best days probably were down at 145 pounds. If we look at it for Alexander Hernandez, too, similar to Roxanne Montefiore, you got a birthday on the Friday, you fight on the Saturday for Montefiore, it definitely didn't work out for her. So what do we know about the short notice replacement replacing my guy, Leonardo Santos, in Mike Breeden? Well, I said he was a familiar face because if you go back and watch his fights, very, very fun style. He's got a knee, fly knee knockout win over Brandon Jenkins that debuted in the UFC last weekend. And I have to say this. Some of these short notice guys and gals are not UFC caliber. Straight up, not UFC caliber. You're right, but the issue is some of them come in and then get a knockout win in three seconds. That's true. Mike Breeden is the type of guy that has a loss in his 5 on into Anthony Romero that... A lot of people thought probably was deserving of the UFC call-up, but unfortunately Dana White wanted to see a little bit more from him. So for Breeden, he loses that fight. He goes out on the regional scene. He gets a win over 9-5. and five. Ken Beverly knocks him out. And then he fights 12-8 and eight, Nick Compton. Now Nick Compton, that was a short notice thrown together fight. Compton was 39. And in the first round... Compton beats Mike Breeden, and he has an armbar that would have made most men and women tap. Like, it was tight, tight. And then he gets a little bit tired in the second round, and Breeden starts to take over. And if you watch a lot of Mike Breeden fights, he reminds me of the perfect boxer for MMA 
that also throws a nice calf kick. He's got a really good combination where he stands a little heavy on his lead leg and he just lets his hands fly. And I kind of liken him to a little bit of a watered down Nate Diaz when he is boxing. Because again, stands with his head up, his foot forward, he throws in combination with the boxing. And then if he needs to, he can throw a little bit of a misdirection. If it's a spinning shot, if it's a flying knee, he's got those tools in his back pocket. He's coming in out of glory MMA and fitness. And I like what I've seen but at times, he doesn't have a lot of output. And if you push a pace against Mike Breeden, he can kind of just shell up and he gets a little defensive. And that's the thing about Mike Breeden. He's almost too patient for his own good. I like it as striking a little bit to Uriah Hall's in that fashion where Uriah Hall can spend like minutes, if not rounds, setting up a strike that never actually comes. And for Mike Breeden, you're right. When he does lull guys into a false sense of security, he can hit them with one of those big strikes, a spinning back fist, an overhand, a flying knee, any of those big knockout strikes. But the issue is that it takes him so much time to set those techniques up. I really worry about him just getting off to such a big deficit in the numbers game against Alexander Hernandez. Because I know everybody knows uh, Alexander Hernandez for the knockout win over Benil Dariush. But I really think of him more as like a cardio machine type of a fighter. When Alexander Hernandez is at his best, he's throwing a very high number of strikes. He's getting into the clinch. He's going for the takedowns. He might not always get them. But at least he's making his opponent work. And that's really going to be the key against Mike Breeden. Also, they're doing him no favors giving him Alexander Hernandez as a UFC debut. And I myself have said Hernandez is a little bit overrated, but still, he's been in the UFC for a while. He has some decent wins. He has some decent performances. It's a really hard ask for a guy on a week's, or not a week's notice, but still, in his UFC debut to just show up and try to beat a guy who was ranked at one point. Breeden is almost like a Jorgen DeCastro tape. He went 3-4 and four in his amateur career, and then as a pro, obviously 10-3, and three, as you see in front of you, but eight of those wins by knockout. The level of combat competition if you combine all the wins was 52 and 33 so it's not really the sexiest of records but again a guy that fought three times in 2017 four times in 2018 twice in uh, sorry three times in 2019 twice in 2020 and once this year and in that Romero fight against a guy that can wrestle and really put it all together the judges scorecards 30 26 30 27 29 28 so when i look at the odds for this one hernandez a heavy favorite open a minus 300 or thereabouts he's a minus 500 according to best fight odds for mike breeden open to plus 250 he's a plus 372 right now and if we have a look at the topology votes surprised us as they are to you and 714 total votes 93 percent hernandez 64 percent by knockout for the seven percent that are breeding 53 percent by knockout matt Again, I think you're not really doing Breeden a whole lot of favors. He's not a volume type of guy. Could he knock out Hernandez on the way in like a Dober possibly? But to me, I think Hernandez is a little bit too busy. And I think if he doesn't overthink it, goes in there, puts on the wrestling shoes, it should be a decent win for him. I agree 100%. The only issue with this fight for Hernandez is if he doesn't win it in impressive fashion, then people are going to be completely off the hype train. It's kind of gotten to the point where it's like, okay, we know you can't beat the elite. So if you don't blow the doors off a guy making his UFC debut, then where do we really put Alexander Hernandez and the whole landscape of the lightweight division? But I still think he'll win this weekend. Both of us going with Factory X's own Alexander Hernandez. To get the win, let us know down below in the comments section who you have in this fight, and you're not going to want to miss this entire card. Co-main event. Holy smokes. Holland taking on Dawkins in the main event. Walker and Santos. Let's keep locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. If you've been liking the stuff from Fight Night Picks, consider supporting the channel by utilizing the super thanks. All you have to do down below the video, you toss in a little bit of bonus, you buy yourself an animated super thanks, and they will post the following public comment on your behalf. 
all sorts of different options out there. We'd certainly appreciate the support with the channel. You guys are definitely the best fans in all of MMA, and we appreciate each and every one of you and hope that you definitely enjoy this weekend's card. All sorts of great matchups littered throughout. We appreciate the continued support of the channel and the boys. Thanks so much. Without further ado, let's get into it. In a fight that was originally supposed to take place in July, we have Macy Chasson taking on Aspen Ladd. And listen, we had a perfectly good video from back then. Unfortunate that, listen, Chasson was forced out of the fight due to an injury. But now we get this fight a number of months later. And for Aspen Ladd, she's battled her own injury woes. So we'll throw it on back to that old prediction video. We'll update you with the new odds, the topology picks, and we'll make our final picks and predictions. We have two ranked contenders battling it out. And this division's weird because last weekend, Marion Renault, she retires. I didn't know she was going to retire. And then all of a sudden... Okay, Craig, you didn't think a 44-year-old losing seven straight fights is going to retire? What? You had to think a little bit. Five in a row. But you have the return Sorry. of Misha Tate. Misha was coy. She won a top five fighter. Maybe it's who? Yana Kuniskaya, but she lost. So maybe it's Irene Aldana. Holly maybe Holm. it's one of the fighters here. Holly Holm, but does she have a fight booked? And then I thought Jermaine Duran to me, but hey, maybe I'm crazy. She's the number one ranked contender. If you look at this division, Aspenlad at three, and then Macy Chasson coming in at number nine. So it's interesting that way, right? Because Lad's so far ahead in terms of the rankings, but they're so fluid that I just feel like it doesn't really matter that much. When is Bantamweight rankings don't matter apart from the top three? Because they're in a tier list of their own and then there's everybody else. You have Amanda Nunes, Holly Holm, and Jermaine Durand. I mean, let's be honest. Amanda Nunes is head and shoulders above Jermaine Durand and Holly Holm. But then you have Jermaine Durand and Holly Holm, who have only proven that they can beat each other and no one else has been able to beat them yet. That's why we get our future title challenger. And man, oh man, if you didn't know that this is ufc 266 coming up on the rankings your next title challenger in juliana pena is ranked fifth she just moved up a spot without even winning a fight so let's focus on this one because matt for macy chasson she had that one loss against lena landsberg back just almost two years ago since then came back beat shanna young who came in on short notice more of a 125er beat marion renault her last time out Man, she beat her bad in that fight. She beat her good. She beat her bad. The she outstruck her. Fight's a lot closer than you remember, though. She did get taken down by Marion Renault, and that's really what this fight's going to come down to. I don't think Aspen Lack can strike with Macy Chasson whatsoever on the feet. I think if she did, she'll get stopped. The flip side is Macy can't get taken down even once, because if she does, she's going to get ground impounded like there's no tomorrow. Aspen Lad is in a category of her own where she is the Habib of this weight class. When she gets people down, she wastes zero time with her ground impounding. Aspen Lad is one of those fighters where... Her ground opponent is that hellacious, like, you hear the thud every single time she lands. Go back to the Yana Kunitskaya fight, and listen, I know Yana Kunitskaya, she might not be the hardest person to beat by knockout, that tends to be how she loses, but still, it wasn't like it was a flash KO, like she just caught her with one shot. She dominated her for not only minutes, but rounds, and then was able to get the finish. It was a really nice performance for Aspen Ladd, who is coming off a terrible loss in her career, and this is the really interesting thing about this fight, and this is why I'm so excited for it. Macy has yet to beat a top fighter in this division. It's not her fault. Marin Renault is kind of getting on the way there, but she has yet to solidify herself as one of the top fighters in this division. I think it is her ceiling, but with a win over Ladd, it puts her in that, like, okay, you're close to the home arena Aldana type category, and the same thing can be said for Ladd, honestly. Kuniskaya wins good but not great. I would definitely think this is a better win for her if she is able to get it this way. When week. I look at Macy Chasson's line, it's crazy to me that she was a fighter that was 2-0, fought Larissa Pacheco in 2018, who had already been in the UFC, and finished her. She beat really Leah Letson, who 
All right, whatever. Beats oh. Penny Kanzad to win the season. That ages like fine wine and not like milk. Beats Gina Mazzani, looks amazing. Beats Cupcake, not Misha Tate, Sarah Morris. Has that loss to Lena Landsberg? So let's go back. Hold on. UFC, the ultimate fighter. That's in the States. 235 is in Vegas. She fights Sarah Morris. That one's in Canada and Ontario. She gets that win. Fights Lena Landsberg over in Denmark. But it was a weird one because Copenhagen, Malmo, Sweden, where Lena Landsberg are from. If you had a strong arm and a baseball, maybe you could hit the other one. I don't know if the countries would like that. But again, Europe's different than Canada and the States, so I'll just leave that one where it is. But didn't look good in that fight against Lena Landsberg. Looked great on the short notice fight against Shannon Young. Fought Marion Renault earlier on this year. Now she gets to fight against Aspen Ladd. For Aspen Ladd, if we back it on up a little bit, she's been in the UFC for a really long time. Did you think at the start maybe the future was at 125 pounds more so? It was kind of weird because I and I know we're going to go through her record in a sec, but there is a loss in her amateur career that always stands out to me. She has a loss Cynthia Calvillo, and that's weird because Cynthia Calvillo, former strawweight, moved up to flyweight. I... It was weird, because Aspen Ladd was always one of those fighters who seemed like she was flirting with 125, but then you do realize, like, when she's in there with other women at Bantamweight, she is a lot bigger and a lot more physically strong than a lot of these women at Bantamweight. The only weird fight for Aspen Ladd was that Sajara Eubanks fight, and it was way too Which close. Which one? Uh, the second one. The first one, she was able to win, but the second one was close. You can tell that when Aspen Ladd isn't able to get the takedown offensively, she's a little bit awkward on her feet. Now... She can get into these, like, Cindy Dandois-esque striking combinations where they don't look good, don't get me wrong, but they will, oddly enough, kind of land and she can get herself into a clinch that way. Again, the big stat that I can't forget, though, is you bring up the Macy Chason fight against Marion Renault. It was closer than a lot of people like to admit. Like, Marion Renault was able to take Macy down, and that's a really big factor in that fight. Marion Renault, at 43 years of age, is not a great wrestler. She's a great jiu-jitsu fighter, but the wrestling has always been something that she has struggled with, and I really do think that if Marion Renault can go out there and get an offensive takedown against you, I really think Aspen Ladd only needs one takedown to accumulate enough damage to make you a lesser version of yourself later on in the fight. Again, this fight's one of those, like, water and oil. If it's on the feet, I heavily favor Macy. If it's on the mat, of course, I heavily favor Aspen Ladd. But that's why this one's so much fun. For Aspen Ladd, her last fight out was against Yana Kunitskaya oh. back in December oh. of 2019. Finished her in that one. Before that, she lost in 16 seconds to Jermaine Duranamy. Was it an early stoppage? Was it a finish? I thought it was. But again, I thought that Amanda Lemos beat Montserrat Canejo. So what do I know? But when I look at this, she was supposed to fight Sarah McMahon just over a year ago. Tore her ACL and her MCL. So for Aspen Ladd, she's traveled all over to train to get ready for this one. I've seen her a lot in Colorado. Or sorry, she was always at Colorado. She's been in California. She's been at the PI. She's had Andrea Lee in her corner. I've also seen her train with, who was it? Uh, Miranda Maverick getting ready for this one. So a lot of different people to train with. A lot of strong bodies in the gym. Again, pull up the picture right here. It's Maverick, Lee, Aspen Lad. She also has, who else? Uh, a couple of big names in Joy Pendle Falcons that you may have heard of in the past. So a lot of great people to train with coming into this one for Aspen Lad. So for Macy Chasson, there was a re-injury of a stress fracture in her foot. And for Aspen Ladd, we talked about it. So many different injury woes coming into the fight that was supposed to be in July. Now a little bit more time to cool off, prepare, and get ready. Matt, when I look at the odds for this one, we have Ladd coming in. A decent-sized favorite. Minus 250 at open. Minus 220 right now. For Macy Chasson, open a plus 210. She's plus 179. The topology votes, not all that close. 865 of them. 84% Ladd. 79% by decision. For the 16% that I have Chasson, uh, 67% by decision. Chasson, of course, a fighter that spent time at featherweight. Aspen Ladd spent time at flyweight in the past. So I wonder 
what these two are going to look like on the scale and when after weigh-ins kind of next to each other as they line up because in terms of height and reach it favors Chasson quite heavily What's your final thoughts here? I do like Aspen Ladd in this fight. We saw Lena Landsberg fight Macy Chason in a very Aspen Ladd type of a fight. And I think Aspen Ladd's a much better ground and pound fighter than um, uh, Lena Landsberg is. I think she's a better wrestler than Lena Landsberg is. No disrespect to the elbow queen. She's a very good fighter, but still, she fought Macy like you would imagine Aspen Ladd would. So you've already seen that game plan work against Chason. I do like Ladd. I will say this, though. I don't put a lot of stock into the foot fracture because in MMA, it's not like you're competing every single night like in basketball or in baseball or something. Like, Kevin McHale's foot got bigger over time because it broke and he kept on playing on a broken foot. With Macy, if you just repair it, take some time off and it heals, I'm not really concerned about that moving forward, but still... She would not have been able to train all that consistently throughout the last few months because of that injury. For Macy Chasson, the Landsberg loss doesn't look very good. For Aspen Ladd, obviously the loss that she had to one tough out in, who was it, Matt? Jermaine Durandamy knocking her out. Was it an early stoppage? No, it wasn't. A little bit. We'll see how the takedown defense of Chasson holds up because 64% so far in her UFC tenure. And listen, Aspen Ladd's going to go takedown heavy in this one. I like Aspen Ladd ever so slightly, but if you do like that underdog status of Chasson, on i mean hey maybe go for it i want to hear from you down below in the comments section both of us have aspen lad in this one again let us know your picks your predictions what you like what you don't what you had for breakfast in the main event tiago santos taking on one tough out in johnny walker you're not going to want to miss keep locked in with fight nate picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. Big time fight coming up this weekend at 185 pounds. Yes, you heard that right. We have the longtime light heavyweight Latvian Canadian Misha Serkinov taking on one tricky, tricky kickboxer in Poland's Krzysztof Jaco. And Matt, I look at this fight and there are so many, I don't want to call them like red flags, but question marks because I look at Misha Serkinov's Instagram. He's got like Denis Goltsov, Alexei Konchenko, a lot of different fighters kind of training with him, not as many pictures of just Extreme Couture, because he was a guy, Extreme Couture, Toronto, but then made his way down to Vegas, had a ton of success, and you know Serkinov as a wrestler and a grappler, and this guy's submissions are wild, absolutely yeah. wild. Look at his fight against Jim Crute, if you want an example of that. Look at his fight against Ryan Spann, if you want the opposite, and that's exactly what happens when Misha can't really find the submission. He ends up getting finished, his chin's been a little questionable, now he's moving down in weight, and that just... The stress and the questions really start to mount. He's going to have uh, not Ray Sefo in his corner this time out of Extreme Couture. I listened to an interview with James Lynch, fellow Canadian with Low Kick MMA, and he talked about the transition while I went 6-4 and four at light heavyweight. Now I want to go 10-0 and 0 at middleweight to make up for it. He acts as, an, as his own agent with Mick Maynard. That was kind of neat to hear. And then the other thing that I got out of it, really training extensively at Drysdale, Drysdale BJJ for this one. I read between the lines because James asked, how do you see the fight going? Do you expect a finish? Well, if I get it on the feet, whatever. I expect Serkinov to go in there and wrestle hard and look for a submission in the first round. That's a little easier said than done against Christoph Jaco. Like, the guy's squirrely. What a hot take, Craig. I think Serkinov's going to go for a first round submission. Ooh. He didn't say it himself. I think this is the easiest fight to predict on the whole entire card. I'm not even joking. Because it's as simple as this. Do you think Serkinov can take Jaco down at any point throughout the fight? Do you? Yeah. Then Misha Serkinov's going to win. Do you think Christoph Jaco can use his footwork to evade Misha Serkinov and force him to become a striker? Yeah. If you think that, then you think Christoph Jaco can win. It is as black and white as that, and I don't think you need to overthink it whatsoever. Misha Serkinov is not only a, 
a poor striker. There's a lack of comfort on the feet with Misha Serkinov. And I know Kristaps Jaco, he's not a... You look at his record and you hear, oh, he's a striker, he's a striker. He must have these crazy knockout wins. Not really. He is a point fighter, if anything. But he's a guy who can make you very frustrated on the feet because of his dynamic movement. He kind of wins fights almost by disengaging with, with his opponent, forcing them to rush in because they're frustrated. Tap, tap, I move to the outside, we reset. And that's a perfect Jaco fight. So, Misha Serkinov is either going to go in there, blast a double leg, get him to the mat immediately, get him in a head and arm choke, and choke him out easily, without any resistance whatsoever. Or, Jaco's going to defend that first takedown attempt and just keep on moving. Keep on moving and keep on moving. And I'm going to even say this. If Misha has a rough weight cut, and I'm assuming it's going to be because he is a big guy to... Uh, sorry, he's a big guy at light heavyweight, so I'm assuming he's going to be massive for middleweight. But if he does have a compromised chin, I could even see Jaco finishing him. Jaco has shown that if he sits down on one of those strikes moving backwards, he can hurt his opponent. He didn't knock out Uriah Hall, but he was doing pretty good tit for tat. And he did rock him on the feet up until he himself got knocked out. But still, Uriah Hall has much more knockout power than Misha. So for me, I think it is pretty black and white. If Jaco can defend the first takedown, he can probably defend the second, third, fifth, and fourth. And if Serkinov can get that first takedown, I think he'll probably be able to submit him within that first minute. Christoph Jaco, 87% takedown defense in his UFC tenure. He's fought wrestlers in the past. And if you want to see a Christoph Jaco win that, listen, I it, it could go, that's what I was going to say. It could go either way. The Marc-Andre Barrio fight where he just kind of, Made it boring. It was up against the cage for the most part. I thought Betty O had a good opportunity there. But for Serkinov, the striking's not even to the level of a Betty O who has success in those exchanges up against the cage. If you want to see that Betty O win over Adam Hunter from our neck of the woods, that's a big one. The five on in for Serkinov, two and three. The win over Jim Crute, the win over Pat Cummins. That was in Moncton of all places. I got the poster next to me. The losses, Glover Teixeira, Johnny Walker, and Ryan Spann. We look at the odds for this fight again you don't have to look all that far because Misha Serkinov is the underdog making his move down. Open to plus 140s, plus 134. For Christoph Jaco, open to minus 160s, minus 161. If we have a look at the topology votes, neck and neck. Wow. 839 total votes. 51% Jaco, 65% by decision, 27% by knockout. For the 49% that have Serkinov, 27% by decision, 59% by submission. I'm going to take Serkinov by submission in this one. Um, but again... Jocko has good takedown defense. I've never seen Misha Serkinov at 185. So that's something that I need to see. So we'll have to see what he looks like on the scales. If he looks bad, if he misses weight, if this fight doesn't even take place, question mark kicks on Saturday, two hours before the fights. I get a final say on that one. So maybe I switch over to Jocko. But as of right now, I like that Misha is focusing in on what he's good at against a striker. I like Serkinov. If Jocko is having success, it's going to look great. Yep. Because... A, Misha, his cardio isn't very good to begin with. So now you'd have to imagine an even more depleted Misha is going to have even worse cardio. So if Jocko, again, I think if he can defend the first takedown attempt, frustrate Misha, make him march forward in that kind of like, un I'll say unique, I want to call it just downright bad, but he does have that very upright style to his striking where it's it's kind of predictable to see when Misha Serkinov is going for a takedown attempt because he is so upright with his striking. I think if Jocko can use his footwork to just evade Serkinov, he'll be able to get a decision win. But again, this is one of those fights where either Serkinov looks amazing or Jocko looks amazing. Matt has Poland's an American top team zone. Christoph Jocko to get the win. I'm going with Misha Serkinov representing Latvia and Canada. Big time fights up on top of this card. Holland taking on Dawkins. Santos taking on Walker. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. 
An exciting fight between a couple of fighters trending in the absolute wrong direction. We have Cowboy Alex Oliveira, a walking bonus, taking on fellow walking bonus. Nico, the hybrid price, coming at us from Syndicate Boxing Club and ATT. What is it? Coral, not Coral Gables. Cape Coral. Cape Coral. There we go. Not Coral Gables. But Matt, for Nico Price, the five on in is sketchy and weird. So let's go through it. He loses Jeff Neal by knockout. He beats James Vick by knockout, which was insane. He loses to Vicente Luque a second time. Then he has the fight that's a draw against Cerrone. Then it's a no contest. And then he loses to Michelle Pereira his last time out. And for Alex Oliveira, loses to Dalby almost two years ago because he fights every other weekend he loses to max griffin by split he beats peter he sabata beat max griffin. yeah he beat max griffin he lost to chef cat rachmanov in a fight that was over in the blink of an eye and he lost to randy brown in randy brown's coming out party and randy's had a lot of them but a single arm guillotine choke like that was insane and from alex Oliveira and then from nico price to me nico price has been halfway competitive in his fights Alex Oliveira in those last two, and I like Chef Kat Rachmanov, and I like Randy Brown more than most people do. He didn't look good. That's not true. He looked good against Randy Brown until he got hit by one right hand and submitted. He was leg kicking Randy Brown. He was beating him up at range. I don't think Alex Oliveira has looked that bad. The issue is he's taken too much damage throughout his career. We know Alex Oliveira for getting into crazy fights, and that's great. You make a lot of bonus money. You get a lot of fans doing that. There is a negative, though, and it means that the longevity of your career will be cut short, and that's what is happening with Alex Oliveira. He just can't eat damage the way he used to because... I, honestly, the first four minutes against Randy Brown, he's doing well. He's landing a calf kick. He's at long range. Randy Brown is having a very tough time landing on Alex Oliveira. But when he lands one clean shot, it rocks Oliveira. And then that's the beginning of the end. And it all happens so fast. I just think Alex Oliveira has lost his durability. And that was one of the few things that kind of set him apart from most other guys. Like, he, you could hit him with a sledgehammer. He'd drop, but he'd get right back up and keep on coming forwards. I do think that that crazy Yancey Medeiros fight was finally kind of enough for Alex Oliveira and his damage pendulum. Like, against Oliveira, he drops Oliveira three times and that's great, but he gets his nose broke and then he gets that broken nose hit over and over and over. And that fight wasn't really a knockout loss. It was the definition of a TKO loss. Like, he goes down from the damage and then the ref stops it because his face was so badly beat. I just don't think we've ever seen the same fighter since then. And then he fights Gunnar Nelson, and that was disgusting. Exactly. A clean elbow from Mount into a rear naked choke. It's just with the scar tissue, with the lack of a chin now, and the way that Alex Oliveira fights, I do worry about him getting into those crazy, like, gunslinger-type draws against someone like Nico Price, because Nico Price is still pretty durable. I know he got knocked out by Vicente Luque, but, like, Luque hit him with overhands. And Jeff Neal. Overhands and overhands. And Jeff Neal landed a bunch of straight shots and a head kick. So, like, if you're going to lose by knockout to anybody, it's probably good to lose to Jeff Neal and Vicente Luque. The thing I will say... This is a weird fight. I think Alex Oliveira can actually win rounds in this fight. And that's the first time he's been able to say that in a while. Because Nico Price fights for the high volume, but he can get outworked. Uh, it's happened in the past. Even Cowboy Cerrone at some points throughout their fight was able to outwork Nico Price. 
But what Nico Price still has is his durability. He can still eat one shot to give one shot, and that's where I worry about oh, Cowboy Oliveira. I keep on wanting to call him Cowboy Cerrone. That's where I worry about Oliveira. because I worry about both of them. Yeah, but when Oliveira is going to get into those 50-50 striking exchanges, the ones in which he thrived in back in 2016, that's where he gets hurt now. And with Nico Price, he doesn't have crazy pop at the end of his shots. Even when he was marching down uh, Michelle Pajea at the end of their fight, like... He was landing clean, but it wasn't really enough to fold Pahea the way that you'd like it. So, I, I think this is a really close fight. I think that this probably will be the fight of the night by the end of it. But it's a weird fight when Alex Oliveira can win it by decision. Yeah, it, it's a tricky one. You talk about the pendulum of damage. And I mean, I don't know where the human weeble wobble that is Alex Oliveira. I, it's definitely not standing straight up. It's, He's the bird of the candle at both ends. It's some, Yeah, that, that much is true, but... For Nico Price, yeah, it's weird. I mean, I think of both of these fighters in my mind's eye, and you might look at it in terms of the stats. I mean, Nico Price actually weighed a pound and a half less than Alex Oliveira when they weighed in for their last fights. But Nico Price is a welterweight. He's a big welterweight, too. And Alex Oliveira is a guy that spent some time at 155. Obviously, he depleted himself, and that's why yes, we find me. him here. But it's something that you have to consider. So I'm eager to see these guys when they do hit the scale. But yeah, I, I look at the odds for this one. And maybe it's a little bit of a surprise. The odds are fairly close. They open at par. Nico Price minus 152 favorite right now. For Alex Oliveira, again, plus 125 or thereabouts. And when we look at the overall topology votes, 848 of them. 85% price, 61% by knockout, 25% by decision. You look at the 15% that I have Oliveira, 43% by decision, 22% by submission, 26% by knockout. I like that call. I mean, Alex Oliveira, maybe you like him by decision to win this one. I like Nico Price in this fight, though. Again, the physicality. You talk about the damage. Both guys have been finished, and both guys have a couple of no contests on their records, but I, I like Price in this one. This is a hard fight to pick. It really is, because I could see Alex Oliveira landing those calf kicks that were having great success against Randy Brown, against Nico Price early, and then Nico Price isn't able to really move forward with a lot of his strikes, and Oliveira can just kind of wait on the outside and pick him apart. I could see that version of the fight. But if this is the fight of the night, and we both think it will be, then I, I think he's going to end up getting finished by Nico Price. I do think they're going to get into some of those 50-50 exchanges where both guys are throwing two, three, four strikes. And I think eventually one of those big hooks are going to land from Nico Price and probably finish Oliveira. Both of us going with Kate Coral Coral Gables, the hybrid Nico Price to get the win. Big time co-main event coming up. And hey, before we get there, let us know down below in the comments section who you have in this fight. But yeah, Kevin Holland's taking on Kyle Dawkins, Chris's brother. And in the main event, we have a big one, Tiago Santos, Johnny Walker. So keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. Autumn is in the air. Pumpkins are in the patch. And our friends at Manscaped are here to make sure you don't Carve your pants pumpkins when you're grooming, if you know what I'm saying. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I think you do. And listen, make sure you're keeping things fresh this fall with the leaders in male grooming and their brand new fourth generation performance package that you can find right here in front of me. Boys, get ready for cuffing season like no other. Ready to take the leap into fall with Manscaped? All right, join the 2 million men worldwide using Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with code F. FNP. Now, listen, we've been there before. We're in the middle of a giant move. This is the last week in the current Fight Night Pick Studios. I say that. Maybe we'll pop back from time to time. We'll have some fun. There's a lot of work to do at the new spot. But listen, one thing that I know for darn sure is that in the new bathroom that I have at the new spot, it's decently well lit. But when I was in the shower today, it was a little bit dark. And I tell you what's not dark. The 
Lawnmower 4.0. You hear it, you see it. Now, if you're driving or if you're on a plane, that probably get a little bit weird in your ear. But the 4000K LED light is a nice bonus to have on the Lawnmower 4.0. The other thing, and I talk about it just about every single week, but the travel lock. One, two, three. The LEDs go up, and boom, I'm good. Now, I've been there before. You're on a business trip, man, and you show up there, and your trimmer's dead, and you've got uh, a long garden growing between your legs, and you want to mow that sucker, but you can't because the battery's dead, and stores tend to close a little bit earlier these times. So, yeah, it's a great addition there. And the other thing that's really great about it, too, and if you want to show this off to your friends, maybe you bought a new house, and you want to just... Show it off. There's a nice charger to go along with it. You pop that one up on your vanity, and everybody's gonna wonder, hey, is that a spaceship you have there? No, it's not. It's a lawnmower 4.0. But there's a lot of great things. If you do pick up the performance package, you're gonna get such things as the crop preserver, ball deodorant. You spritz a little bit of that on your hand. It's like a salve, it just goes on very well. And to use the word spritz, the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. You're just going to spray a little bit of that on in the morning if you need a little bit of a pick-me-up. I've been using it quite often, so I may be low on that uh, their bottle. But the other thing that I use quite often, I definitely have a nose hair problem. You've heard me just about every single week, not just talk about it, but... Put it into practice. Illustrate it. The Weed Whacker, if you want to chop up the worst weeds up top in your nose and your ear... This dual blade system, it's a 360 degree dual blade system. It has a 9,000 RPM motor. The other thing, you can take all of the Manscaped stuff apart. So if you have to get some of the hair out of there, which that one's probably full, uh, you can clean them quite easily. Same thing with the Lawnmower 4.0. You know those motors, you got to kind of lube them up a little bit. You can get at them fairly easily and then pop them right back together. If you pick up the performance package right now, you're going to get two free gifts. You're going to get the shed travel bag. You're also going to get their uh, boxers as well. And they fit quite nice. They're quite nice. So check them out. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code FNP at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with code FNP at Manscaped.com. Make your balls a priority this fall. Choose Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. We have two big fights up at the top. Dawkus taking on Kevin Holland. Who would have thunk it? Clash of Styles and in the main event fireworks tiago santos and johnny walker so keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. I like the way you as interesting a fight as they will come as always one half of your host and duo craig allen you can find me on twitter and instagram at craig allen fnp with me to my left you're right matt allen fnp on the respective socials we have a clash of styles or is it? Between Trailblazer Kevin Holland and Kyle Dawkins. And for Kevin Holland, it wasn't that long ago where he was the 2020 Fight Night Picks Male Fighter of the Year. What happened to the 2020 Pretty Fight good, Night Kevin. Picks Female Fighter of the Year? She just had a title shot and lost in impressive fashion. That was Lauren Murphy. But for Kevin Holland, there was a point in time where he was getting his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt from Travis Luter. There was a point in time where he wasn't really going to train at Luter's anymore. But on the graphic I have in front of you, he trains at Luter's a little bit now. And for Holland, obviously, you know what needs to happen. His last two fights... He got squarely out-wrestled by two of the better wrestlers in the division in Derek Brunson and Marvin Vittori. Now, Vittori was on short notice. We know this, but he had a lot of time for Brunson. And he caught Brunson with some good, clean shots in that fight. But, I don't know, Derek Brunson with blonde hair has a chin. I guess that's all I can say. For Kyle Dawkins, it's been a weird UFC run. It hasn't been to the success that his brothers had, but he takes on Brendan Allen on short notice. And he rallies back in that fight. And it's a lot of fun. Then he goes out and fights Dustin Steisfuss. 
and it's competitive. He wins that one by decision. Then he fights Phil Hawes, and it wasn't a great fight for Kyle Dawkins. And listen, he was supposed to get Ali Askab Hizriev. I still have that fight locked in the vault of Fight Night Picks in case it ever does happen again, because Hizriev's a wild man. He's a fun fighter to watch. But Kyle Dawkins, what does he do well? He strikes... And he's got power on his strikes, but this guy's a grappler through and through. Martinez, BJJ, you know him as a Philly guy. And he's going to go out there to take you down and try and choke you out. Is this the opportunity he's going to get against Kevin Holland that's trained a little bit at AK? But a myriad of gyms I've seen on his Instagram. Again, I just threw up Travis Luter BJJ, or we just threw him up, but... He's trained at a lot of different gyms. I'm eager to see what Kevin Holland we get on this fight night. Exactly, and I'm really eager to see how good is his takedown defense because Kevin Holland is a unique fighter, and you brought it up when you said this is kind of a clash of styles. If Kevin Holland is underneath of Kyle Dawkins, then yes, he is a worse grappler than Kyle Dawkins. But if Kevin Holland gets on top of Kyle Dawkins, he's a pretty tricky grappler in the top position. He's got great ground and pound. He's got good submissions himself. Like, people forget that Kevin Holland is a good jiu-jitsu black belt in MMA because he's been taken down and held down by top level wrestlers. When it comes to grappling, I'm not speaking about wrestling, I'm speaking about grappling once it hits the mat. I don't think Kevin Holland's just some terrible grappler. I really don't. I don't think Kevin Holland's going to have just this UFC career filled with just getting wrestle aft by a bunch of people now. If it happens by Marvin Vittori and Derek Brunson, that's one thing. Those are the two of the best wrestlers in the division and two wrestlers who can also strike on the feet and who can also strike their way into their wrestling. With Kyle Dawkins, this will be a really unique fight because it's going to test Kevin Holland's takedown defense. If Kevin Holland has been doing nothing but wrestling. If all he's been doing is focusing on, okay, defending takedowns from those high school kids with Daniel Cormier, like we saw in those clips. If he has been working with, like, Ben Askren and the boys, then, hey, maybe Kevin Holland can defend some of those initial takedown uh, attempts from Kyle Dawkins and force Dawkins into a striker because Dawkins does have good power on the feet, and it's almost a bit of an issue for him. I, I kind of look at Kyle Dawkins. I'm not going to put Matt Sarah onto him, but it got brought up last weekend. I feel like it's a worthwhile talking point. Kyle Dawkins is a heavy hand at Grappler. And I worry that if Kyle Dawkins does start to get knockout wins on his resume, he'll start looking for the knockout a little bit more. And I worry about him in this fight because I don't think he can strike with Kevin Holland at all on the feet in this fight. I really don't. Kevin Holland is not only a good striker from the outside, he's a very flexible striker from the outside. His strikes come from odd angles. He's a unique puzzle to solve when you are on the outside. Now, Kyle Dawkins can really not worry about that at all if he just puts his head in Kevin Holland's chest. So, this fight's going to come down to, I guess, two things. The takedown defense of Kevin Holland and the game planning of Kyle Dawkins. And the game planning of Kevin Holland, because are we going to trash talk here? Are we going to try and have too much fun? Because that's backfired, especially in his last two fights. And if we have a look at the odds for this one, Kevin Holland coming in the favorite. He opened at par. He's minus 152 right now for Dawkins at par. And now he's a plus 126. We look at the topology votes, not even close. 915 of them, 84% Holland, 37% by decision, 55% by knockout. For the 16% that have Dawkins, 61% by decision, 19% by submission, 9% by knockout. I'm surprised not more people have picked uh, Dawkins to win, again, by submission. But Kevin Holland is slippery on the ground. He definitely is adept. Kyle Dawkins is a big middleweight, like he a is. big That's guy right. at 185. And Kevin Holland, it, there's always snickers, jeers, and question marks. The guy weighed 183.5, if I'm not mistaken, for both of his last two fights. 
Are we moving down to 170 and are we going to be a big tall rangy guy there? Are we just going to keep doing it middleweight? We got our answer. So I'll be eager to see is Holland going to pop pop from the outside and walk away or try and, you know, skip away out of the danger of Dawkus or how it's going to play out. It really is tricky when you have a guy that almost needed or needs to reinvent himself taking on a now unranked fighter in Kyle Dawkus. I still like Kevin Holland because of those striking attributes that he does possess. But again, like it's 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 Kyle's world on the mat. It really is in terms of his physicality and his wrestling. If he's able to get those initial takedowns, it's going to be tricky. I agree 100% with the pick. I will say this though. If Kevin Holland loses this fight, he should fight Lorenz Larkin next in Bellator because it's it is hard to fall from the peak that was Kevin Holland's hype at the end of 2020. Like he was a guy who was calling out Israel Adesanya, getting Adesanya to respond to him, which is a key factor in all that. Like he was supposed to be the guy. He was supposed to fight for the title at some point during this year. And if he loses to Kyle Dawkins, I just don't really know if Kevin Holland will ever be able to reach that uh, peak that we once thought he would be able to. But I still think he's going to be able to get the win over Kyle Dawkins. Matt, both of us going with the trailblazer, Kevin Holland, to get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section. Do you favor the grappling over the striking? I want to know who you have in this fight and in our main event. Tiago Santos is taking on Johnny Walker. You're not going to want to miss that. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. Johnny Walker is going to win this fight. Johnny Walker is going to win this fight in terms of the walkout. And maybe that's just about it. He's taking on Tiago Santos. And for Walker, he was one of those guys. We talked about it. Kevin Holland against Kyle Dawkins. Holland was our 2020 Fight Night Picks Fighter of the Year. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Fight Night Picks, at Craig Allen FNP, at Matt Allen FNP. And if this is your first time joining, consider subscribing and tossing us a like. It helps out the channel, but it doesn't just help out the channel. It helps you as well, because if we can reach 30,000 subscribers, there's a new show. We're going to be breaking down Dana White's Contender Series, and I know a lot of people want to see those videos. So here's your opportunity to help out the channel. But Matt, for Johnny Walker, his rise to stardom was absolutely insane. The knockout win. The one over Ledette, the one over Serkinov. Then he loses to Beast in 25 8, Bellator's Corey Anderson. Then he loses to Nikita Krylov. And it's not just he loses, he got totally mopped in the grappling department. Comes back, Ryan Spann tries to take him down, and in classic Ryan Spann fashion, just gets absolutely hellbowed and beat. So for Walker, he gets to kind of rebound a little bit. And this is a guy that spent time at so many different gyms. And sometimes when he's lost, he hasn't said the nicest things about the gyms, but from what I've seen from the Instagrams, he's now gone back over to SBG Ireland. And if you don't believe me, he's trained in Russia for certain fights. He trained with Faraz Sahabi in Montreal for a fight. Like, it's been all over the map. He's trained in Vegas and so on and so forth. But Johnny Walker, wild dynamic striker, not very good on the mat. Tiago Santos, did he beat John Jones? A judge thought so. Maybe. One judge thought so. Ruined both of his ACLs. And then since that John Jones fight, he hasn't looked that great. He had moments of brilliance against Glover Teixeira where we looked like donkeys for a bit for picking Teixeira in that fight. No, we didn't. didn't. I called that fight to a T. Until we didn't. Until Teixeira was able to get the finish in the third round. And then in his fight against Alexander Rakic, it was just... It was. 
He didn't do anything, and that was the problem. This is the issue with Thiago Santos. He is a classic extremes player. We talk about this all the time. You got Chris Davis. You got Allen Iverson. Guys who rely on their athleticism so much that the second they lose any of it, it kind of makes their whole game fall apart. Now, with Thiago Santos, it is odd. Even though he did get both of his ACLs torn and reconstructed, he still has pretty good power punching, so it's not like he's completely lost his uh, dangerous ability on the feet, but he has lost some of the dynamic movement that helped him set up all those power shots. Tago Santos's nickname is Maheta, but a lot of people know him for his capoeira. They see him do like the, you know, the dancing and the flips. He's a very dynamic fighter with his movement, but I always worry that when you have a 36-year-old fighter, I guess at the time, who tears two major, major ligaments in their knee, how are they ever going to come back from that? And Tago Santos has kind of showed that Hey, I don't really kick anymore. And that's a really weird thing that I never thought I'd say. If you would have told me that, hey, Thiago Santos is going to have a weird late career half where he just kind of doesn't kick anymore and relies on his punching power, I'm still here for it. It's going to result in exciting fights, but it's going to remove him from being a title challenger in this weight division. And that's really the issue with Thiago Santos and really Johnny Walker in this fight. I don't look at the winner of this fight and the winner of this main event, and then I think, wow, they're one fight away from like a title shot, or maybe they should be in a title eliminator next. I think this is just kind of a fun fight, to be honest, that either guy could win. Yeah, I look at this one, and for Thiago Santos, I could see this fight going the same way that his fight against Jan Blahovic went, where Blahovic is walking forward, Santos cracks him, drops him, and then just hammers away and finishes the fight. Now, Jan wasn't out cold, but you had to end that fight with a hammer fist, and he's got his hand up. For Johnny Walker, again, it's bursts of athleticism in this division, something that we don't see very often, the fly knees, the jumps. You don't want to make the comp, but I will. So you were thinking it out there. I'll say it. Michelle Pereira. It's the same thing. It's just weird wildness that you just can't really predict. Is this the fight where Johnny Walker slows it down like Michelle's had to do lately and start to use the fundamentals that he has in his back pocket? I think we're going to see a more complete Johnny Walker with a fuller camp at SBG where you see those pictures. He's listening with John Kavanaugh. They're having a good time. They're thinking about the game plan. Here's the thing. If your grappling is a zero, do you go to SBG to make your grappling get better? No, you go to strike. Santos open a minus 160 favorite. He's a minus 171 right now. Johnny Walker open a plus 132. He's a plus 142. And if we really think about it, look at the topology votes, Matt. 921 total votes, 70% Santos, 87% by knockout. For the 30% that have Walker, 80% by knockout. Somebody's getting knocked out, Matt, apparently, according to the fans, and the odds are relatively close, so what are you saying? Neither guy has a good chin. Here's the thing. Johnny Walker gets knocked out like it's going out of style, but so does Thiago Santos. Like, Thiago Santos, people forget because he has so much firepower on his end, but he's been knocked out a lot in the past, and will he, he's fought Vicente Luque David and Branch. fought Eric Spicely. Yeah, but David Branch knocked him out. And like Eric Spicely and choked him out. The Branch one was weird because he just caught him like right behind well, the no, ear. Well, he ducked into an overhand. It was a weird shot. To me, it was anyway. But continue. But this is the thing with Santos. I worry about his durability too. I'm not just saying that I worry about Johnny Walker's. I feel like that's something that should get brought up. Neither one of these guys are like a Justin Gaethje or a Dustin Poirier. Who, when they fight each other, you're like, oh, it's definitely going to go to the fourth round. With this, I really do think that it's a simple as the first clean shot that lands on either side is probably going to end it 
So I'm ever so slightly going to pick Thiago Santos. I can't believe I'm saying this. I think he has the faster hand speed out of these two guys. And my issue is Johnny Walker leaves his chin extremely high in the air. I know he's six foot six, so it's kind of hard to hide it. But still, his striking defense, he does tend to bring his hands down. And Thiago Santos has absolutely filthy overhands. Ask Glover to share how it worked out Jimmy for him. Manoa. Exactly. So uh, I am ever so slightly going to pick Thiago Santos. Although if Johnny Walker wins, it's going to be like jumping double flying knee into a 360 spin back. I like Johnny Walker in this fight. I think if he leads with leg kicks and he just slows down the movement of Santos and he really slows him down to just a boxer and then takes away and zaps the power, I think that's it. I like Walker. I don't like either guy's chin, so I'll throw that one out there, but I really want to hear from the Fight Night Picks fans. Down below, do you have Santos? Do you have Walker? Majority of Topology fans are going with Santos in this fight. Make sure you follow us at Fight Night Picks. Craig Allen FMP, Matt Allen FMP. You check out questions our kicks live two hours before the prelims and our second channel we'd really appreciate it if you did 50 minute card breaks link down below in the description wild card 13 fights keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it.